Good morning and welcome to the Isle of Faces. Welcome to part 9 of the Scraps and Scrolls slash fellow readers for Dance with Dragons. Hello, I am Sir Buckley, of course, your resident green person here on the Isle to take you through all the notes and I am speaking to you from, uh, well, it's a dark, windy, rainy England. Rainy Isle, unfortunately. A nice frost, the pretty winter, that's already left us apparently. Instead I'm waking in the dark every single morning, taking the dog out to squelch in the mud and the wet. It is not a lot of fun at all. Unfortunately I'm running on solar energy reserves so I'm gonna have to rely on you all and these chapters to get me through it aren't I? But no worries there, I think you're both up to the task. So hello and again welcome, thank you for being here, thank you for travelling through such awful weather just to talk some aswaths, to talk some dance, it's always so very much appreciated and like I say you guys keep me going with your kind comments and your downloads and your likes and the ratings whenever they come up etc etc so I'm always very very thankful and before we get going let me mention of course the wonderful patrons, the ones that keep the aisle clicking and turning over, again you are very very much appreciated, I have all the love in the world for you. As always I'm thanking Aegon the Sixth. Lord Commander Namian Darklin, KM, and Archmaster June Healer of the Lesser Poxes, and all other patrons as well, of course, we love you all. Today, on part 9, I know we are racing towards the halfway point, we're not quite there, I think it is the last chapter of next week's episode, Theon 4, and think... I'm right in saying that's the actual halfway point of the book in terms of total chapters at least but we really are flying through it and we've got some doozies today you might have noticed uh, you might have seen my tweets about how many words are actually getting put up into just the free chapter episodes how much damage it's doing to my wrist apparently but well we got there just imagine how much we've got for four chapters again yeah a lot a lot, a lot of work but fun work so that's all good not too much to go through before we get going with those four chapters today. While I'm on the thank you kick and just uh, some doing some appreciation, you'll be aware I'm sure that there's always a lot of conversation at the moment about the toxicity of social media sites and how much time we spend in them and how much they stress us out etc etc. It's a conversation I have with a lot of people, something I try to work against and I recommend that you do too. And I just want to let you know of a, a good alternative because there are some smaller, more niche communities where you can still go to interact with people but avoid that larger stress that social media brings. And I'm talking mainly about History of Westeros and Radio Westeros and their Discord and Slack sites. There's really good little communities there. I'm sure that the majority of you are a member of one if not both probably both and if you're not well i just want to give you a heads up because it's really fun over in both places so if you're not might be something you want to look into i heartily recommend it especially if you want to play some aswath 20 questions with yoke boy and lady gwyn they are fun they get very interesting so like i say you know where to find those guys definitely take a look if you get a chance and final thing before we get going is actually just a little bit of recognition of the date because I'm recording this intro here on the Thursday, Thursday the 3rd, just to pull back the curtain of how these episodes come together a little bit. And it just so happens to be the Castle's Book's birthday today. Hmm, yeah, I know I go on about it too much and I think you might know what I'm talking about. But you might remember there's a little old thing called the Great Castles of Westeros that I wrote and released one year ago today. So at some point I'll have to get a candle out and take a picture and all that stuff. If I was a more organised man, or a smarter man, or maybe just someone with a little less to do, I would have thought of some way to celebrate the fact. Some special episode, some special podcast episode, or a deal on the book, or maybe even releasing a, a different edition in, in terms of page design and size and all that. Maybe one day, maybe one day we'll get to that, that would be nice. But for now, well, we'll just have to say, happy birthday, Castle's book. You, you did okay, chum. You did alright. I still love you. 
So really, it's an extra thank you for all of you who way back in the day bought the book, read the book, said nice things about the book, or just shared my tweets and stuff like that. Again, so very, very much appreciated. But you didn't come here for Castle's book talk. No, no, no. We came here for Dance of Dragons talk. Part nine. We're back to four chapters. What are those four chapters? Well, let me tell you. We'll start with Danny 5, Daenerys 5, let's keep it formal, where, well, what's the best way to describe this chapter? There's bad news. I know, it sounds like every Daenerys chapter, but that's pretty much the theme of it. Bad news and the war is coming yet again. Then, it's a very, very special day, everybody. It's the one we've been waiting for. It is Melisandre 1. I know, mind blown. We get to be in the mind of one of the most mysterious, jaw-dropping characters in the series. I can't wait for it. Melisandre one. I don't even need to tell you what happens to that one. It's not important. The fact is, we get Melisandre. Then, we're staying in the north. We've got a nice little northern sandwich this week. We're actually heading to Barrowton for Theon slash Reek 3. Roose is now truly back on the scene and he wants to use Reek in some way, just as Ramsay did, so we'll get to that. Now, well, you know, what kind of themes we get in those chapters. And we'll finish with Tyrion 8. Yes, somewhere we're on an eighth chapter already. We're aboard the Selassie Koran, if I'm saying that correctly. And we're on our way to well, calf, supposedly. But we're out on the seas. We've got Makoro. We get a much better look at Penny and all that sailing stuff. So we'll get to that at the very end. Lots to get to. I won't delay you any further. Thank you again to patrons, to Aziz and the Share. You know where to catch them on Sunday evenings with the live show for Valoridis. Make sure you're always sharing and liking those as well, if you please. And again, thanks for being here, even in the rain. Let's get going, shall we? We'll begin with Daenerys 5. So like I said a moment ago, there's only so many ways you can really describe this chapter. Basically, it's bad news. All around, throughout, beginning, middle and end, lots of different types of bad news, but bad news all the same. And we can really see Daenerys starting to feel the strain. It is getting to her. She's getting pissed off, she's getting snappy, because this is a horrible world to live in. This is a nasty situation. And this is actually in an improved situation in some ways, which we'll get to see in a moment, but still the bad news just keeps piling and piling, the weight gets heavier and heavier, and she's tired of having to carry it, and everyone else just complaining about how she carries it, that's the even more annoying part. We'll get some great kind of crossover, some linking in with Quentin, as the the uh, display of the second half of Dance in terms of Marine and Slaver's Bay gets a lot, lot clearer, we know what's coming, thanks to Quentin, now Daenerys is finding out extra details about that, how is she going to deal with it, We've got old problems, we've got new problems, and most importantly, we've got what's it going to cost to solve these problems, or even try to solve them. Well, we'll get to that. I think the best way is probably just to dive straight in, because Danny, she needs a shoulder to cry on. Let's go and provide it, shall we? As with pretty much all Daenerys chapters, we start with how things have gotten worse since we last saw her. In this case, it's the fact that Marine is now being besieged by sea, as well as all the river trouble that we covered in earlier chapters. There is an entire fleet, roughly 25 ships, out on the Slaver's Bay, which has put an end to trade, to fishing, as well as any ideas of escape or reinforcement via the waves. Not that she had any allies coming that way anytime soon, anyway. And there's even this note of Miranese ships being out there, included in this fleet, ones that escaped when it was Danny attacking and laying siege back in storm. So there's the well-trodden element of old mistakes coming back to bite you, as we got a lot in Danny's arc, as well as in many other people's arcs as well, actually. That's a common theme, especially in this book. Calf, Talos, New Geese, they're all out there, leering at Danny from across the bay, and we know from last week they won't be that long until Volantis joins them as well, so it's not a great start. 
This is obviously a big, big problem, like we discussed with the river. They really need these pathways to be open for food, for money, for not letting the city just kind of devour itself. And unfortunately, that's exactly what's going to happen. With this being an issue of the sea, Daenerys turns to her Admiral Grolio. But even on this first page, we can see how the amount of problems and the lack of answers are wearing on Daenerys. She's being... She's being unreasonable, if we're being honest. She's uncooperative in this conversation with the Admiral and her paranoia about treason is creeping in as well, which is another good sign of just a lack of sleep and stress and all these things. She's just getting wearisome. Grolio's first suggestion to solve the problem is let the dragons out. Boats are just about the most vulnerable target for a dragon, aren't they? They're made of wood and kind of easy to spot and whatever else. One strike by Rhaegal and Viserion and this fleet would either be kindling or they'd be sailing away very, very quickly. The bay opens up again, several of those problems we just mentioned are solved, and you get the added bonus of Danny's enemies all taking a collective step back if they now know that she's actually willing to use Dragonflame. Theoretical dragons, they're one thing, but watching them in action, watching them burn, that probably makes you rethink your plan somewhat. And Grolo's logic makes sense. The dragons would be an incredibly potent weapon against the fleet, but that's only half the argument in Danny's mind, isn't it? We know this. Who says that she can control them to that level of tactically striking at ships? She's never done anything like that with them before, even before she imprisoned them. And now she's locked them up for however many weeks or months. So would she have any command whatsoever? Or would they just escape as soon as they were free? Would this fly off? Or, even worse, start flying around burning anything in sight or, God forbid, eating more children? We know the pain of guilt in Danny's heart and she will not risk that. Not yet, anyway. She's not going to cross that line. And maybe Grolio is only suggesting they show the dragons and not even let them loose, and that'd be enough to make the fleet go away. Maybe it would. But even that's too far for Danny, especially when remembering the human cost just to imprison them in the first place. Her own people have died to put them away. We're not going to rush to get them out again. So that's where unreasonable Danny comes in, demanding solutions that just aren't possible and ignoring why they're not possible because she's just sick of hearing no all the time. Will someone just say yes and say, oh, that's a good idea, boss, just once? That's what she's asking. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen. And unfortunately, it's Grolio in front of her having to put up with the brunt of that. Grolio can't do anything without ships. And her plan, her suggested plan, for him to ride out 22 leagues to find some timber, it smacks of her almost being childish in a way. First off, it's likely that such an expedition would be attacked and killed if they were to go out, but Grolo also wouldn't know what to do when he got there anyway. As he says, he's a sailor, not a shipwright. Danny is just casting him as the know-it-all ocean man and throwing everything his way because, again, she's tired or stressed or whatever. And this isn't normally the type of mistake that she would make. She's a better leader than that. So again, we can see the effects now. And in response, Grolio is kind of bitter. He never signed up for this, remember. It was a collection job from Carth to Pentos, which is already quite the voyage in the first place. And instead, he's landed in a war zone with his beloved ships torn up for scraps and the added likelihood of never seeing his wife again, never getting to go home. He's done all of this without being overly moany, but is getting more and more frustrated now thanks to Danny's decisions and Danny's demands. In fairness, okay, he's only looking at those Danny decisions from angles beneficial to him. He just wants his ships back. He just wants to be able to do something. He just wants her to accept Calf's offer or whatever else. But we know why she can accept Zara's offer, etc. But still, you feel for the guy here, especially as re-readers who know that Grolo is quite right. He will never get home. He will never get to see his wife. And remember, that happens after Danny departs on Drogon. So she'll have to learn that news, supposedly, at some point and wins and feel the weight of her decisions and this argument she had here with Grolio. We've spoken before in the past about how Grolo is just one of those unfortunate people who get swept up by fate. Again, he didn't ask for any of this, and he's been of considerable help to Daenerys more than a few times, and actively supported her, but ultimately, he loses everything. He loses his life just by being connected to the Dragon Queen. The Admiral makes one last-ditch effort to persuade Danny to unleash the dragons, but 
she refuses. It's a non-starter. Just go away and pray for a storm or something. No sailor prays for storms, your grace. I'm tired of hearing what you will not do. Go. Well, Euron doesn't pray, but you could certainly see him hoping for a storm, couldn't you? But anyway, this is a pretty nice encapsulation of their conversation. Grolio being grumpy and salty, informing Daenerys of what she doesn't know, and her just being damn fed up with it all. She's talking to Grolio physically, but really this is a message to everyone. Everything is a negative. Everything is a no or a problem. It's very reminiscent of what John was talking about last week in terms of Cotter Pike and Dennis Malister, you know, complaining even when he's helping them, that type of thing. With Grolio dismissed, it's time for Barristan to pop up, much earlier in a chapter than usual, and he has a crack at cheering his queen up. They've still got food for now. They've planted some crops and fruit, so they'll have more soon enough, theoretically. Her Dovraki have even freed some slaves in the hills, and they are also planting. Plus, they have that deal with the Lazarine of them bringing food, so... Well, that's nice, isn't it? But is it too nice? Uh, I don't think Barristan would ever outright lie to his queen, although that might be up for debate later in Winds, but he might try and present a particular angle to keep her spirits high. I think that might be what he's doing here. How long will those stores actually last? And can the yield from their planted crops actually replace those emptied stores? I highly doubt it. Plus, all that food coming from the outside still has to get here and not be plundered on the way, and Yunkai is coming, so yeah, it's not great. There's a valiant effort from Barristan, and there's worth in appreciating what you've got, but overall, it's not like Danny has really won anything, is it? Barry also gets Daenerys to laugh, which again, is as valuable as anything else in this climate, and given what we've seen of her so far in this book, it's sorely needed, and she gets to return the favour, asking about Barristan's trained knights. So now it's his turn to smile, and Danny notes that he's almost beaming with pride while talking about the young'uns that he's training up, and we'll see the truth of that much later on, when we actually get to Barristan's POV, and get to see the passion of his own thoughts surrounding the boys. In a kinder world, he would have been allowed to do that for years upon years. Unfortunately, the upcoming Battle of Fire probably has something to say about it all. And quick as you like, the nice, calming conversation with a friend, the one that's sorely needed, is replaced by the stressful argument with a colleague, when Skahaz comes calling with two of his brazen beasts. His main use here is to give us an update of the Hisdar-Zolarak plot thread, even if it does seem like ages since we set that up a few weeks ago. So for all of Danny's problems of encroaching enemies outside, we learn that the inside, the original problem presented to us in the book, has actually quieted down. Oh, very good. It's been three and a half weeks since the last murder from the Sons of the Harpy, and given the extreme cruelty shown in Danny's earlier chapters, this is an incredible win for her and a big, big step forward. But then again, it's also one that's bittersweet, as we remember... If his dad does pull this off, it means that Danny has to marry him, which we don't want, but then we don't want any further murders, do we? It's, it's a toughie, which is another pretty strong theme of this chapter I should have mentioned at the beginning, just moral dilemmas, not knowing which one to choose. And Skahaz is pissed, as always. We know that he hates Hisdar thanks to the ancient rivalry between the houses, so some of this is just annoyance that Hisdar is being seen as successful by the Queen and might actually end up as King. That rankles him hard, and that's another story we'll learn more about when we get to Barristan's chapters and see how the two of them react to having Hisdar as King. For now though, we learn that Skahaz has been following Hisdar and trying to note who he talks to, which is an idea of his making, not Danny's, which is probably important to note. Danny is understandably preoccupied with the result. Like we said, three and a half weeks with no murders when it was happening like every other night. No more murders for her to guilt over or be weakened by. But Skahaz wants to know the how of it. How has Hisdar managed this magical feat unless he is either one of the harpies or perhaps even their leader? And to be fair, it's a very, very strong point that persuades a large amount of readers, no doubt. This is something else that can be even better explored after Danny's departure, but the assumption that Hisdar is really, really good at diplomacy or just paying everyone off seems a little suspect right now. You would think that, at worst, he's a lower level member who now has considerable influence. 
Is he actually the harpy? Well, I bring out my disclaimer. I said it right at the beginning of the book. I'm not going to spend a lot of time guessing it's this person, it's that person. It's just one of those things that we could talk about for hours and end. And you'll have your opinions and I'll have mine. I definitely think he's at least aligned in some way. Maybe he's even the leader. I don't know. Let's not focus on it too much right now, shall we? In fact, rather than focus on his dime self, Skahaz and Danny are actually now arguing about the actual makeup of their enemies. Skahaz, as mentioned, thinks that Hisdar is the head of the organisation, or if not him, then someone else running the show as an ultimate commander. There's someone at the top. But Danny thinks that'd be too simple. This problem is too layered and complex, too important to too many people throughout the city. My enemies are legion, she thinks. And this is probably the much wiser choice. This isn't an enemy with a face that, if killed, will collapse the whole thing. That's too easy. This is a matter of national identity, pride and survival. They literally hide their faces for a reason beyond anonymity. It's to give the impression that they're everywhere. They are marine. They are the whole city. And like I say, if I was really pushed to guess, I'd say there's a leadership level or council within the organisation with maybe a Hizdar, maybe a Galaza upon it. That seems much more likely to me. I suppose we must wait a while to find out the truth. But waiting for Winds of Winter isn't Skahaz's cup of tea. Torture is. Danny tells us that he has already tortured dozens of Sons of the Harpy, and now he wants to add Hisdar to the list. Partly to learn what he thinks are valuable secrets, partly because he just really wants to torture Hisdar. Unfortunately, Skahaz has overplayed the torture card. Danny knows that he loves the technique and has put too much stock on it. As we've discussed before with Cersei and earlier on, when Danny met Hisdar, torture is too easily capable of producing any result you like. So we see how clever Hisdar was actually in mentioning that anything he said via torture wouldn't be worth anything as it clearly sticks in Danny's mind here. Very, very smart from him, like we pointed out at the time. Skahaz has provided Danny with countless names, but they've all turned out to not matter. So why should this time be any different? She knows that he's far too quick to resort to such tactics, and she doesn't like the choice in the first place. She was willing to cross that line when she was angry, and there was a chance it would produce something valuable, but it hasn't. And Skahaz has overplayed himself, as I say. She knows it's a matter of enjoyment for him, not just result. And that's another reason to say no now, which she does firmly. So Skahaz continues the theme of the chapter so far. Danny's subordinates not just being unhappy, but showing it. And that's a big difference, isn't it? You can be unhappy with your queen, you can disagree, but actually showing it to her face, that's another level. Skahaz feels ballsy enough to tell Danny that she is making a mistake to her face, first off, but then also implies she is a fool, and then gets snarky when Danny tells him that his dart is not to be harmed. The relationship is clearly fraying, the tension is rising. This is the exact sort of thing that sieges can create within an enclosed space so that the powder keg that is marine takes another step to getting worse and worse and blowing up in everyone's face. Danny is getting so fed up with all these people and their many problems, yet she also is still smart enough to know that she needs Skahaz, but then she has to keep her authority. So this is how it's supposed to be done. If the conversation ended there, that would be bad enough, but unfortunately it does not. Skahaz also has a list of the Miranese ships out in the bay that we mentioned earlier, and which houses own them. Like we mentioned right at the beginning of Danny's arc, basically all the big houses, including the ones who have already denounced her, have ships out there in the bay. Supposedly, they are publicly decrying the move by their relatives, obviously, but Skahaz is clearly suspicious. Especially since Hisdar's family also has a ship out there. Even Reznak's family does. So Skahaz makes his second recommendation. Use the brazen beasts and take family members of these captains as hostage. Threaten them and maybe we can make the ships back off. But Danny is against this idea also. It's all hostages and torture with Skahaz. He, again, has simply just played this card too many times and she is sick of it. Whatever the brain may say, she has peace on one hand with Hisdar and blood on the other with Skahaz. 
and the latter is just too associated with violence and shows of strength. There's a long discussion to be had about Skahaz and whether he's recommending this because he's a bit of a bloodbeard who likes carnage and killing and has a personal agenda, or whether he thinks this is genuinely the best option for Marine and Danny. As with most things from George, I would personally guess that it's a mixture of both. There's even a line of thought to suggest that Skahaz is a double agent, playing them all and actually does support the Harpy, although I don't buy it personally, but maybe you do. My gut says he's genuine in his support of Daenerys, but that doesn't mean he's not dangerous in the same way that Dario can be. And that's what Danny recognises here. If we do this, okay, we might get rid of some ships, but it's not going to matter because we'll have Pandemonium on our doorstep and we'll have actively moved to shatter the peace that's been been provided by Hisdar. We can't openly move against the pyramids right now. That will only end in blood. And to show she means business, Danny burns Skahaz's parchment full of names in front of him. And Skahaz glowers at her. So that feeling of rebellion and defiance that we've got so far is tripled somewhat because he might genuinely hate her at this point. Barristan supports her when it's all over, tells her there was a right move. He even incites the name of Rhaegar, which Danny always wants to hear, obviously, wouldn't you? But she remembers Jorah's famous words about Rhaegar and his end and worries that all her nobility and trying to do the right thing might wind up with doom for them all. Which is a shame, because we don't want to lend any credence to the idea that Jorah Mormont has a brain cell, and Danny should be proud of what she's doing. Then again, you can easily envisage a future situation where we can look back and say, things would have been different if she'd just listened to Skahaz, and that may well be true. But it also means that Danny would be a different person. She'd be nowhere near as clean on her soul. Okay, next section of the chapter here, down in the purple hall, and we get teased with Danny having a better day when no one has turned up to petition her for once. That's certainly a first, but then it turns out a much, much bigger problem is going to crop up and take up all of her attention anyway. Grey Worm, Resnak, Skahaz again, they all come back to hear what Galaza Galare and her three blue graces have to say about a dying messenger who rode towards the city with major news. Here we enter one of the most important parts of the chapter, as we heavily merge with Quentin's storyline, as I hinted at, at the beginning, and his last chapter specifically, as Daenerys is informed of what has happened to Astapor. First, this rider is described by Grey Worm, a dying man on a dying horse, wounded by an arrow and being destroyed by fever as he repeatedly cried out, she is burning, by which he means Astapor clearly. Well, we certainly know the truth of that, thanks to Quentin. Astapor was doing much worse things than just burning, but we know that the main message is, it's fallen and it's fallen hard. Before we get into the details of exactly what happened, some of which were not included in Quentin's chapter, we have a possibly even more significant moment when considering the entire series, the arrival of the Pale Mare. Izara, the Blue Grace, is the one who tells Daenerys that this rider was not feverish from his arrow wound, but from this terrible sounding illness that goes right through a person and kills them from the inside out in a very painful, very disgusting way. Though Danny is originally sceptical, the assembled graces are sure that this disease is now making its way north from Astapor, streaming to Marine and making it even more dangerous than simple warfare. We've spoken a lot about disease and potential pandemics already in this book, not just because of our current real-world circumstances, but mostly because of grayscale. So we've covered how devastating such an event would be in Westeros or within the Golden Company or something like that, but that was all theoretical and far off in the future. We don't actually know anything about it or whether it would even happen. Whereas this situation, we do know about as rereaders. We know the Pale Mare is indeed galloping towards Marine and is going to have a devastating effect on the Freemen and later on the Yunkish camps that set up around Marine. And maybe even Daenerys herself in her final chapter. We can't rule out that theory, can we? So this is a real significant moment for the setup of the second half of this storyline. The first contact with the disease that is really just throwing petrol on the fire here, isn't it? We already have multiple parties fighting, swords switching sides, class warfare within the city, and internal rebellion as well. Caged dragons, food issues, and everybody ready to kill one another. Now we're going to throw disease on the pile as well. 
just to see those flames go high, high, higher again and mess everything up even further. Galaza Galea says this is a sign of wrath and ruin and we must agree she is pretty dead on. Danny doesn't want to buy that, she's got enough problems. It's one guy, it was the arrow. Don't you dare say to me that we've got a health crisis on its way on top of everything else. I have enough on my plate and we are not equipped to deal with it in any way. In fact, we'll soon have perfect breeding ground for the bacteria and to help the spreading, so please say that you were joking. But then it gets even worse because she recalls that she's heard the term pale mare before from Quaif. Or is it the widow? Maybe not, who knows? We discussed that last time. Either way, this is another warning of something come to hurt her and her cause. Remember what Quaif said, she said, soon comes the pale mare and after her the others. So not only is the pale mare coming to wreck stuff for you, but then you're going to have all these other issues coming after. You've still got that to look forward to. So now Daenerys is definitely going to worry about it and whether she can convince herself that the colouring of this horse the man actually rode up on was a coincidence or not. But there's also a more urgent concern to deal with first, one a lot more defined than the potential of disease. If Astapor has fallen, that leaves Yunkai to head straight for Marine. Disease is a maybe. Spears and swords, they're definite. So Danny doesn't hesitate. She acts quickly and decisively, which is good because so far it's not been a great chapter for her. She orders Sir Barry to basically click the defence option on our grand civilization game. Bring back the Blood Riders, bring back the Second Sons, and yes, bring back the Stormcrows. Yes, after all the umming and ahhing in her last chapter and deciding it's best to keep Dario Naharis away from her, more of his violent tendencies and her own temptations, she's now bringing him back. There's no time for such fancies anymore. The war is progressing and she has to deal with the bottom line. So she needs all her swords around her, no matter how much she likes them, not only to defend against the incoming enemies, but because if she waits too long, she might be cut off from them forever if Yunkai besieges the city, obviously. There is some fleeting worry from her that her previous dismissal of Dario will have sent him into the arms of the Yunkish, given his previous history of already defecting to her. She tells herself no, he would never do that. And re-readers get a little smirk of irony, because we know of her two sellsword captains, she actually needs to be worrying about the other one. The one that returns to her first, a week later, and that she's so pleased to see. Ah, oh, poor Danny. When you see her react to his presence like this, and smile and joke, you know how much deeper Brown Ben Plum's eventual betrayal is going to cut, and your heart really has to go out to her. The joy of Ben returning only lasts a few moments anyway, before the real world seeps back in, and it just so happens to be running the same subject as we were discussing a moment ago anyway, Astapor. Three are brought before her, trade men and women of the working class, almost like an inversion of the three that Danny left as ruling council in the first place. Of these three, nine more were slain on the way here by Yunkish sellswords, which ties us right into the end of Quentin's chapter, doesn't it? The first confirmation that these three give here is that yes, Astapor has fallen, and then some. Danny had nursed some hope in the city's thick walls, even though she herself previously noted they were crumbling. The second point is much more hard-hitting and personal to Daenerys. The weaver raised her head. Every day we told each other that the Dragon Queen was coming back. Cleon had sent for you, it was said, and you were coming. He sent for me, thought Danny. That much is true, at least. There's a deep unfairness in this because Danny never agreed to come. She never made these promises, and for very fair reasons as well. But that doesn't matter to the people that were left there to suffer, does it? The Weaver is going to double down on this point in a moment, talking about how some of them never lost faith and were convinced that Danny would come with soldiers and Danny would come with food. She leaves it unsaid that obviously Danny came with neither, and look what happened to them. Again, it just feels unjust because if Daenerys had been able to come, she would have. She'd love nothing more. But to do that, she would have had to lose Marine. So all she'd be doing is swapping one party of her people for another, whilst also weakening her position and her ability to help others in the future. It is all part of a painful lesson that you can't help everybody. Not even when you're a mother of dragons. She can try and she can want to, but ultimately she can't. Still, we know Daenerys. We know this will weigh heavy on her heart, even if her head tells her that logic didn't allow it. 
The image of these poor people starving that we get from these three here, these people cannibalising, being frightened to death of what was coming, and putting all their faith in her only to be disappointed, is a very deep feeling indeed. And there's a possibility going forward that she is disliked by the surviving Astapori for not showing up. She might be painted as a selfish woman who didn't care for those in need, despite nothing being further from the truth, and the fact she never said she would even come. It's all just, again, unfair. It annoys us, it hurts us. And that isn't helped by the cobbler detailing what truly went on during the siege. We already know such horrible stuff about Astapor, yet somehow every time it gets brought up it gets even worse. This time they really focus on citizens not just eating each other but having to organise themselves to do it. That's how bad the starvations become. And surely reading this sours your stomach as much as mine. Normally when you think cannibalism in the Song of Ice and Fire you think of the North but really this theme is just all over dance and you expect it to become even more prominent during wins. We also learn that the dual rulers of King Cutthroat and Queen Whore quickly turned on each other, bringing yet more chaos to their city of hell. From there, we get further connections back to Quentin's chapter, such as how they decided to send the body of the Butcher King out in his armour, or how the impaled woman that Quentin saw was the Green Grace who recommended such a strategy. We have entire groups of people choosing poison and death over having to wake in such a place, and then worst of all comes the Bloody Flux, introducing itself to a city already on its knees, and that being the final straw that turned the Astapoi on one another until the gates were opened and it was all over. Queen Hall went down fighting, King Cutthroat went down with the dogs. Miraculously, matters got even worse after that. The butchery truly began, it says. A temple full of the sick was burned in the hopes of stalling the disease, but all that did was spread fire over the entire city. Yunkai, so incredibly cruelly, sealed the gates on the outside and finally just let Astapor collapse in on itself. The place was always rotten, always evil, but truly this is an end that none of us could envision or wish upon anyone. People trapped and left to scurry around inside like rats, desperately trying to avoid both disease and fire. This is the Fion effect in full, by which I mean George making us think we want something and then actually showing us a reality and making us see we didn't really want it. And it's, it's incredibly difficult to read. Hell on Earth almost seems too complimentary. And throughout the description, this passive-aggressive weaver keeps up the guilt trip. To the very end, there were those who never gave up hope, who kept looking north for their angel on a dragon. And again, she leaves it unsaid that Danny never showed. And again, Danny has to reassure herself that she couldn't have. She did all she could. Though it is interesting to wonder if someone did actually spy Drogon on the horizon. They say they saw a dragon out there in the sky. Astapor, hmm, well, it must have made quite the scent, wouldn't it? Maybe he did want to go and see what's going on. After the bricklayer gives his detail on their lucky and miraculous escape, Danny remembers that council that she left behind, a council supposedly made of society's best. She takes us back to our first visit of Astapor, when there were lovers kissing on island rivers, when it was just life in general, a society, a civilization. Yet look what happened in the end. So she thinks, well, is that because of her? Is that her legacy, really? The only answer she can give is to remember the crimes that happened there, the centuries upon centuries of unknowable misery and pain that the Astapor dealt out in their plaza of punishment. They brought this upon themselves. So these three surviving Astapori are dismissed and Danny finally addresses what we've already seen from the Weaver Woman. There is blame behind her eyes and Danny believes that there is also the feeling of whatever happened to Astapor is now going to happen to Marine after they are besieged and turned into a second hell because that is obviously Danny's greatest fear. That concern intensifies when Ben announces that these three were just the first to get away but eventually thousands did and they are all being driven north past Junkai, as we heard in Quentin 2, to bring their hunger and wounds and disease to Marine just so Danny can have yet another moral and logistical problem to deal with. We know what a big facet of the second half of Danny's arc this will be so it's a pretty important moment. 
The assembled councillors all begin chattering about how either hunger or disease could ruin Marine before Yunkai even gets a chance. They must not be allowed inside the city or will mean pain and death. But the idea of not letting them in, of barring their way, that's just too much for Danny to resist the guilt anymore. I'm no maester, mind you, said Ben, but I know you've got to keep the bad apples from the good. These are not apples, Ben, said Danny. These are men and women, sick and hungry and afraid. My children, she thought. She just can't bring herself to think of these people as numbers or apples or anything except people, people that she needs to protect. She's, well, she's just too pure, isn't she? She's too good. She wants to help and save, as always. Tyrion said it. She's a saviour. She can't imagine abandoning these people, not at all. So what are you supposed to do when saving one group of your people will kill another, or likely kill both? What is the correct decision? Well, here George gives us a moral quandary that there isn't an answer to, is there? It's the Edmure problem of Riverrun writ large. Leaving the Astapori outside the walls will save the Miranese and your cause, but it requires leaving dying, starving people out there in their misery as they cry out for help. But relenting to that feeling and letting them in is purposefully and willingly giving Marine pain and suffering and destroying your own position. There's no easy answer. There's no solution that doesn't result in death or yet more blame. And she bitterly recalls what Dario said about all kings being butchers, which is again so unfair given that we know her true nature. The situation is so horrible, instead of thinking how to solve it, she backpedals to dream of how it could have all been avoided in the first place if she had just gone to Astapor like the Weaver woman said. Barristan and Skahaz both correctly label that as nothing more than a pure dream. If she had gone, it would have only been a more active version of the same choice. Which group of people do you save and which do you let suffer? I know, I know, said Daenerys. It is Araya all over again. Yeah, I'm not sure why I include that quote because I never know how to say that name and uh, I'm pretty sure I never said it that way before, but well, we're going with it now, Araya. So Danny finally verbalises what we've been saying for a lot of her chapters in this book. The constant worry that she's doing more harm than good in the world. That was barely a concern in the glory days of Storm, but now everything is catching up and falling prey to consequence and she's convinced herself that she's made a net negative in the world instead of the truth that we all know. It's been a long time since we've had to discuss Araya, no idea about her name, but the heavy symbolism in that tale and what it meant to Daenerys especially has not left us, as we see here. Danny is convinced that she's just extrapolated that issue out to entire cities instead of a single girl. She piles all of the blame on herself, so unfairly, and sinks lower into melancholy. She insists that she should have known, she should have been all-powerful, she should have stopped the world from turning to save these people. Our hearts bleed for her being so cruel to herself. The world weighs down and Danny continues to crack. It is Reznak who pushes the conversation forward as he insists that Daenerys needs to marry Hizda right now for surely only he can make a piece of the Yunkish. Unfortunately for him, the fact that Quaife appears to be right about the Pale Mare only increases Danny's suspicions about Reznak, the perfumed Seneschal. And in fairness, whether this is right or wrong, I find myself caught up in the Quaife wave as well, and I'm pretty convinced this guy is not to be trusted. Am I right or wrong in that? Well, again, I'm not going to get into it. We could go around in circles about that all day, but I don't like Reznak very much. Danny, even with these atrocities, cannot allow making a peace in her heart, not with these slavers. She is not beaten yet. She still has several weapons to put out on the board, even if we know she's about to have one less, as we'll discuss in just a second. For now, Reznark and Ben Plum get into a little argument about the dragons yet again, and whether they should be counted among Danny's playing pieces, and both of their agendas are easily viewable beneath their words. Reznak is heavily on the side of the dragons being locked up and not allowed out, because they are uncontrollable and dangerous, because that obviously helps his point about his dar being their only option. Whereas Ben wants them on his side, because he would firstly rather fight with them than without them, and secondly, he's weighing up the board and which side he actually wants to be on if they truly won't be let loose. 
The rest of the passage is pretty much dedicated to Ben Plum and his plotting for the next move and is great fun as a rereading exercise to look how smooth this guy is in securing himself and how little conscience he has about betraying the girl he was joking with just a few minutes before. Before he gets to helping his own odds, he tries his best to get the dragons out as he lays out what the situation is going to be soon enough. Three sellsword companies versus two in Yunkai's favour. And even first time readers know that the Windblown intend to come over and flip those odds, but then rereaders know that Ben is going to negate that advantage himself anyway. And then Volantis is supposed to be coming, and Ben has even heard that the Golden Company has been hired. Where he got this false information from we don't know, or perhaps he's just lying in the hopes of persuading Daenerys about the dragons. But let's say he is being genuine, then you can really see that Ben is actually saying, look, I do not want to fight these people. The Golden Company alone are no joke. This is not what we originally signed on for, and we will lose. Which sellswords generally tend to dislike. And that's before we get to further Giscari legions as well, and maybe even Dothraki hordes on top of that. And again, whether that's another self-made rumour or not is irrelevant to be honest. The point is Ben insists that they have to use the dragons or they will lose and they will die. But Danny still denies him due to those many reasons we discussed earlier in this chapter and earlier in the arc in general. She simply can't get over that hump. She doesn't trust the dragons at the moment. So we see that Ben has basically made his decision, hidden though he might keep it. I am not going out there without these dragons, he's thinking. And that does seep through into the page even if Danny remains blind to it. The first hint, which seems so major in retrospect, is him advising that they get the hell out of there then if they're not going to let dragons out before it comes to battle. Get paid to leave and go. He gets to live and he gets paid for the privilege, satisfying his two main goals in life. But Danny has goals far beyond that and denies him again and unfortunately completely misses the signs that Ben gives off. Again, we have hindsight where she doesn't, but in a chapter full of counsellors going against her or being defiant or going across the line, whatever else, Danny never even thinks to suspect the one who is nice and smiley. It's hard to blame her for that. There are so very few nice and smiley things in her life. So it's not her fault for clinging to one when it does happen. Perhaps if she had some actual room to think she would consider the effect of what saying no, no, no might be to a sellsword. She might think that she's just commanded him to fight in bad odds and denied any plunder and think on how that fits into what he himself has told her about old bald sellswords. But she misses it. It's not a critique of her leadership or smarts. It's more just a sign of the times. There's too many problems, too many quandaries, and too many people to suspect already. Something is bound to slip through, and unfortunately Ben's being okay with the opposite of what he's just asked, and his further grabbing also goes unnoticed. When Daenerys looks around her council and decides there will be war of Yunkai, one, she will take to them, as she once did in Storm, and let's just skip over her missing jaw moment, because bleh. It quickly becomes another argument of whether they should seal themselves in Marine to fight a siege, or take the field instead. Which is where Ben starts applying his smoothness. It begins by checking on the whereabouts of Dario and the Stormcrows, either because Ben wants to know if they will block his path to escape and betrayal, or possibly because he's wondering if they sense the same problem as him and have already gone over. From there, the situation really drops into his lap as opportunity is provided by Danny asking him to go out and scout the enemy. It couldn't have worked out any better for him. Except Ben thinks it could, and seems to know what he has in a relationship with Danny, so he pushes himself a bit further. We could have some of your incredibly precious food to keep us going, couldn't we? Yep, and if you want us to ride quickly, we'd better have fresh horses. Yep, no resistance so far, let's go for the home run. If you give us some money, we might even be able to tempt over sellswords to our side. Sure, whatever you need. <laughs> Simply put, Ben takes Danny to the cleaners right here, and there's no other way to put it. He doesn't just leave, which should be bad enough, he robs her on the way out, just to make it that little more hurtful than it already will be, as we'll see in future Danny chapters. It's a masterclass of taking advantage by him, but really does make him look like scum in our eyes. And again, we've got to think, poor Danny, what else can we think in this chapter? 
That is all done and confirmed, and Daenerys doesn't so much as blink an eye. We're back to the original problem instead. This mass of Astapori are coming, and what do we do with them? Danny's distractions of war and battle are already spent. We're back to the moral dilemma of her children. At first she says, we have to help them. They are mine, they are in pain. I already feel like I failed them, so let's open the gates. And it actually takes Barristan himself to dissuade her of the notion, saying that he's seen the devastating effects of the flux before, although we don't actually know when, and that it simply isn't viable to let them in. Here's a quote. Danny looked at him helplessly. It was good that dragons did not cry. As you say then, the weight is just becoming too heavy. It's finally starting to crack her shell. It is all so unfair and she feels so guilty and on and on it goes with just getting battered with it in this chapter. Even when she accepts that Sir Barristan is correct and they must remain outside, she insists on being the best person she can be. They will not be abandoned completely. She'll set a camp up for them. She'll send food, maybe even look into separating the healthy from the sick. It feels small and feeble to her, but that's all she can really offer. The frustration is so high that she snaps once more at her council and then dismisses them before retreating to her own terrace. Unsurprisingly, she is still musing over Astapor and its burning as Barristan reappears and she desperately seeks some reassurance that she's made the right choice and there might even be some good news on that fiery horizon. Can we make a fight of this? she asked him. Men can always fight, your grace. Ask rather if we can win. Dying is easy, but victory comes hard. That's a superb line, I really do love me some Barry. Who really gets to show off his wisdom here? The freedmen they've been training can fight, sure, but not to the ability of the enemy. Although, he did give an opposite impression a second ago when she first asked, so bear that in mind. And even more importantly, he notes that their swords were once Yunkai swords, and that such men switch all the time. What a shame that neither of them bothered to think further on their own advice here. They bring it up and they don't even think, mm, what if we just sent Ben with all our money and horses? On top of that, they've lost her gigantic advantage in the dragons, and the only foreign friends that they have are famous for not fighting. The walls did not stop Danny, and this time there's people inside that will help them bring them down. Danny wanted good news, Barry has bluntly delivered the opposite. Almost completely adrift in melancholy and lack of options now, Danny asks her beloved Barry what he thinks they should do. He insists a siege for Marine would be a disaster, which is true, so he should be allowed to go out instead and head off the Yunkish in the field. It likely all sounds very glorious in his head, but as Danny points out, he's just said that the freedmen aren't ready, and if the Unsullied go with them, then it's the problem of leaving to save Astapor all over again. Marine will just crumble behind them. There simply is no option. I cannot fight two enemies, one within and one without. If I am to hold Marine, I must have the city behind me. The whole city. I need... I need... She could not say it. Your grace, Sir Barristan prompted gently. A queen belongs not to herself, but to her people, she thought. I need his Darzola rack. Danny took one final plea, this time to the gods themselves, but they proved to be as unhelpful as the rest. So she makes her own decision, perhaps the only road available to her. Nearly half her problems will be solved if she doesn't have to watch her own back for the Miranese trying to stab her, even if brand new problems are going to sprout up as a result of her solution. And there's only one avenue to get to that point. If she truly wants to help people, she truly wants to help her children, it will require a sacrifice of herself. Hence, his da the acceptance of his proposal, marrying someone she does not love or even desire for the betterment of all marine and those now within and without. She wants to be the saviour, so she milks herself into the victim to achieve that. And what down of a chapter with a down of an ending? Not a million miles from John's own outing, two chapters ago when he experienced very much the same thing, having to give himself up. Right from the opening line, Danny Five through to the end, like I said at the beginning, is all bad news. Complicated morals, guilt and oncoming danger. And that's just the stuff she knows about, let's not forget the rampant betrayal and theft as well. Thematically, emotionally and logistically, this whole chapter is just a hammer to Danny's soul, beating her further and further down. 
The strain is clearly showing in her mannerisms and speech to a point unforeseen so far, and it finally results in her making a huge decision that has us crying out as we read it. It is such a disheartening sentence, this admittance that she will be forced into this marriage, half because she thinks she's already failed and deserves this fate, and half because she thinks it's the only possible solution. We do not want her to give up this part of her soul to satisfy a city that hates her, even if it does help with the war stuff. We don't want those floppy ears on all day every day. We don't want the Miranese to claim this victory over her, and all the problems she brought up when Galaza first came up with the idea still exist as well, such as, well, what does this mean for going to Westeros? And we as readers know that Quentin's only around the corner, and know he doesn't solve every problem if he'd got there first, but still, it's interesting to think about, isn't it? Rereaders will only feel this all the stronger because they know how his double act after her departure and his plans for the dragons, etc, etc. They'll see how there's basically zero affection in this marriage and it's another hammer blow to Danny's spirit as this heavy Miranee's not friends to overcome her. It's a real masterclass from George because we've known about the majority of all these problems from the start. They're not new, a lot of them, but they feel so much worse now and you really get that sense of build-up that's leading to Drogon's return even if we're narratively still miles away from that. In some ways, it's also just the mirroring of her and John increasing even more. John has already effectively married himself to the watch and denied himself the chance of love or affection. Recently, he's even denied himself the connection of friendship. And now Danny is playing catch up in that regard as she sacrifices a major part of her life and also political sway we should not ignore for this city. It rankles us even more that this is all for Dan Marine, I think. So our sympathy for Danny might be a book high so far. George has left us little nuggets of hope in the form of the wind blown coming over, or the fact that the Golden Company is actually going the opposite direction, although in some ways that makes it worse that Danny's making this crucial decision without all the correct information, but really we're just as frustrated as she is, especially as many of us do actually think the dragons could solve a deal of these problems. So we wait faithfully, sticking by Danny until brighter days come, whether that be in the form of a better situation, or Dragonflame returning to Slaver's Bay. Okay, and that's that first chapter. And yeah, a bit of a downer. Unfortunately, can't really offer you many non-downers in this week's junk, but I can offer you something that's at least quite intriguing. Quite, not enough. Very, very intriguing. As we reach something we've been waiting for for quite a long time. Yes, we're going to leave Essos for now. We're going to go into our northern sandwich with our second chapter. The one we've been waiting for. Melisandre 1. It is new POV time, everybody. That's one of our favourites, isn't it? And, well, this is just above the bar for all of our new POVs, to be honest. This is one of the book's few completely new POVs, like we've discussed before, and the first one that is a character that we've already met. We've had John Con, we've had Quentin, but they were new. We have Barristan and Mel, and obviously Barry's got to wait till later, but here is Melisandre. And as per usual, I went over a lot of the overall stuff for Melisandre in the prepper episodes, so I'll try not to repeat, but then again... This is a unique experience within the series, so we do have to give it its due. On top of the fact that this is completely unique in terms of being a single chapter for a POV character in the only book where we just get one, so it's very close to Aerys Okar in Feast of Crows, but I'm pretty sure he's not getting a second one, whereas we all assume Melisandre will. So nobody else but her is in that exact situation. On top of that is the fact that it's centred around one of the characters we would most want to find out about out of all those who have been non-POV characters so far. If you line them all up, and there's obviously hundreds, it's a pretty short list of who you really, really wanted throughout the books. And I've got to say that Melisandre, she's right up there, isn't she? As characters go, there's really none who are the same mix of intense secrecy over their own past or intentions, uh, has abilities that we want to find out about, has knowledge on not just politics and storylines, but the true nature of things, wields power of her own, and is completely unique as a character. 
Of all our POVs, I contend that she is easily the most unique, and we can learn things that we'd never be able to learn from anyone else. Most POVs, yes, although they have all their separate storylines, there's crossover firstly for most of them in interacting with other POVs, but they also all have similar elements between them, whether that's due to their gender or family or situation or whatever, whereas Melisandre is just a complete outlier. In almost all ways, there's very, very little that she has similar with anyone else. That goes from the very, very minute details to the larger, more obvious ones. For instance, she's only the second ever SOC POV we get after Aria Hotar. And even as I say that, I realise, well, is she even associated? Does Ashai count as Essos? Is she even from actually born in Ashai? We don't know, do we? This is my point. There's so much that we don't know. But included in these things that we, we really do want to know, there's stuff about Stannis, like I say, her own abilities, the magic of the world, the entire religion of R'hllor, which we've already just expanded on recently. From right from the off, Melisandre has represented what we don't know, right from her very beginning. That's what she's supposed to be, the question mark. She's the walking red question mark in A Song of Ice and Fire. She's a walking mystery, one that, sure, is wrapped up in beauty and power and shadow as well. So really, this is the one we've all been waiting for. There's mysteries and possibilities up in Castle Black as well. We've got to consider the present, not just the past. I mean, she could just talk about what happened in Clash, what happened in Storm, and nothing happened in this chapter, and I'd be happy with it. But we've also got the present very pressing problems and uh, plot lines to consider as well. It is true excitement to finally reach her. And since she's around for so little time, we had best appreciate it, like I say. And let's recall where George has decided to place the lone window that we get through Mel's eyes. Technically, this could have been a John chapter, and the plot would nearly be exactly the same, wouldn't it, really? So why give it to Mel if we're only going to see her the once? Well, part of that is establishing her as a character, as well as some of her personal information, so that he can hit the ground running when we presumably have Mel chapters early on to deal with some rather urgent business during wins. You're thinking, if we open and John's just died, we don't really want to be going into her backstory too much, we want to run with it. But a lot of it also has to do with giving details on magic and power and raising the tension as well as increasing the atmosphere that John is surrounded by forces that he hasn't fully grasped. But also remember there at the end of John's last chapter we came to a truly creepy end surrounding Melisandre and her visions and her control of Ghost so George has once again ultimately timed his chapter sequencing so that we are most revenant of Melisandre just at the time that we actually get access to her. This is when we couldn't be any more excited to finally meet her in that sense, in this book anyway, so so that's some unbelievable talent from George there as always. As for what we're actually going to get in this here chapter, because yeah, I could slip into just talking about Melisandre, you know what I'm like. What we get in this chapter, we'll see how she does certain things, which we've again been wanting to do since the Clash of Kings prologue when this question mark was introduced, but perhaps more importantly, we'll also see how she views things. What does she actually think of this and that? Does she buy what she's selling? Is it all just an act? Does she harbour doubts maybe about Stannis? What is she plotting for Jon Snow? Does she know more than she's outwardly said about the true nature of the wall or perhaps even the others? We don't know. And that's all on top of general stuff like her background and who she is as a person if we believe such a persona exists. For me, personally, I've always found Melisandre one of the most fascinating characters. Don't know if you can tell. We all feel the little tugs towards certain characters or plot lines where we need to learn more and she's always represented that to me. Plus, she's just that complete enigma. There is no one like her, like I said, and I truly believe she is going to end up as one of the most important characters for the endgame. There's no way that I can believe her purpose is just to bring Jon back and that's it and then we don't really see much for after. I don't think that's 
going to happen. Maybe it does, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. The very first time George was tasked with expanding the story beyond Lannister versus Stark with a bit of Daenerys thrown in, by which I mean the beginning of Clash of Kings, he made her the subject. She's the whole point of that very, very long Crescent prologue. Now, I, there's plenty of other stuff in there as well, don't get me wrong about Stannis extra, but she's the catalyst. She's the focus. The whole thing swirls around her. So she's important. When Clash introduced how important religion was going to be in this series, she was the first example. And while we've seen magic dotted around here and there in different parts of the world, and obviously with the Starks, we've never seen so much surrounding one single person. And we've never seen anyone else have such control over it. She's alone on that pedestal. New POVs like Quentin or Barristan are all well and good, but ultimately they'll deal with the political side of war and things that you know we find down the south, whereas Melisandre has moved from that originally now up to where it's really, really important in the north, where it's our main area of focus. She is now absolutely primed to be so integral to the late game, maybe as a helper, maybe as a hindrance for all we know. Because that's another reason I find the character so fascinating. She's powerful, but she's flawed in ability, intake, and philosophy as well. There's plenty of weaknesses in there. She's not just the all-powerful wizard in the corner, snap her fingers and make something happen. No, there's a human element to this because this is George and we know that's how he writes things. He somehow manages to insert realism into magic, if such a thing can ever exist. Melisandre will be wrong about a number of things we're about to see in a moment and her position and ability mean that such mistakes could be devastating to huge numbers of people. She's gambling with very important things here. She's the ultimate influencer, right here, right now. So add all that into relationships with major characters like Stannis and now Jon. Who knows what she'll do if she ever meets Danny? Well, she's got it all for me anyway. But that's enough of rambling for me. I think maybe we should tackle the actual chapter because I'll have enough to chatter about during that. And it's hard to even begin and take the line seriously because we're so amped up for what could be coming and what we could learn that we're almost forgetting to actually read the thing. At least that's how I find it. Even the first line plays off of our expectations. It was never truly dark in Melisandre's chambers. Well, what does that mean? What is truly dark? Is this a magical trick to let her see through the darkness? Is she being metaphorical? What's the deal? Because we've already thought of a hundred answers and I'm too excited for this chapter. We have to chill a little bit. And accept the fact that we are with Melisandre, we are in her chambers, which is another place we've never visited. And if we can just contain ourselves, we might learn something. So take a deep breath. It turns out the first line is actually literal. It's never truly dark because Melisandre keeps candles burning constantly, loads of them. The fire is always fed, it's never ever allowed to go out. But again, just that is enough to set us off. Why is Melisandre never allowed to be in darkness? Is it some kind of physical manifestation of her religious belief? Does she literally think if she goes in darkness she'll be spiritually surrounded by it? Possibly. She hates the darkness so much because of her hatred of the Great Other, and she doesn't want to be part of it. Or is it the reverse, and she needs this constant companionship of fire to keep her comfortable, keep her safe, keep her powers going? Could be. Is darkness somehow harmful to her ability, or to her actual safety? We've got no idea, but if you are intrigued by the magical mysteries of Melisandre, or lore, or magic in general in this world, if you want to call it that, or anything in this entire plot thread, then even these questions are pretty exhilarating. And even with those two short paragraphs being enough to entice us, the third really, really gets us going, as we realise that Mel is currently doing a fire reading, and we're actually going to be present for one. Doesn't get much better than that, does it? The ability to look into fires and see visions has been cropping up in more and more places in our recent readings, but has actually been a part of the plot for ages now, a pretty major part if we go back and look at it. And for so long, we've simply had to wonder about them. Are they real? Is Melisandre just bullshitting? What about the other people who've seen things in flames? How does it actually work? Is it pure magic or some unknown trick or ability or what? We've wondered 
Davos has wondered, I has wondered, lots of people wonder, I imagine. Of late, we ourselves might have wondered as Melisandre just got access to a glass candle or something, and maybe this is something that those can do. We don't know. Simply put, Visions in the Flames is one of the most prominent parts of all magic in the story. It's one of the most consistent, and a large part of our constant discussion on whether magic actually exists in this world, and if it does, whether it can be wielded by humans, or is it just something they can witness, whether it's an actual influence from a god or some other force. Again, there's just lots of questions. Really, flame visions have only been second to warging as a magical type influence, so lifting the curtain and seeing the reality of them doesn't really get any bigger as a major moment. But scepticism is also wrapped up in this. How clear are the visions? Does Melisandre embellish or leave out key facts depending on her own argument at the time? How much of it is interpretation? We're going to find out some of those answers here. And don't forget, she very recently made this all the more important in Jon's last chapter by introducing her visions of Aya, quote-unquote, and of Jack Bulwer and his group going off-ranging. So let's get to it. Let's get to the visions, shall we? Firstly, Melisandre is double-checking something, so we know she's doing this on the regular at the moment, which makes sense. I would be pretty addicted to it if I had the ability, and I'm sure you would too. Secondly, she admits that many before her have been fooled by false visions. Now, does that mean there are sometimes visions that are literally simply false and don't come up and they're completely misleading? Or that these priests and priestesses have interpreted them wrong and deciphered the wrong message? It seems like she's leaning to the latter, but either way, it proves that such is possible. This is not 100% failsafe. There are flaws in this technique. As clear as we might like it to be, that's not the reality, apparently. Thirdly, and most importantly, we get instant confirmation that Melisandre genuinely believes that Stannis is Azor high and assumedly buys into the rest of his legend as well. She's not a bullshitter, she's not putting on a front, she is actually fully invested in him and helping him and everything that goes along with it. Now, that's probably what we assumed anyway, but right here, the first time we're in her mind, we get that confirmation, so we can scratch that off the board at least. It's good to get out of the way, so we don't have to wonder, and it instantly allows us some clarification on the rest of the entire series really, because she's always been so mysterious that we've never been absolutely sure if she was using him or playing a higher game or whatever, so again, pretty major. Even if the irony is that most of us expect her stance to change in the future after a bit more time spent with John, but that's for later. It also makes us look at Stannis a bit differently. Maybe he is the actual real deal, despite what Maester Aemon and others have said about his cold sword. Or perhaps it's a case of Melisandre just deluding herself and not being able to see the truth given how much of her soul and spirit she's dedicated to this project. This isn't a quick flyby, is it? She's put a lot of time and effort into this whole thing. It opens up a lot of thoughts about the Stannis storyline in general, to be honest, stretching right back across Storm and Clash and what Melisandre might want to do in the future, but it's really hard to concentrate on that right now when there's a vision happening right in front of us. So, screw it, it doesn't happen often, does it? Let's quote the whole thing, shall we? Visions dance before her, gold and scarlet flickering, forming and melting and dissolving into one another, shapes strange and terrifying and seductive. She saw the eyeless faces again, staring out at her from sockets weeping blood, then the towers by the sea, crumbling as the dark tide came sweeping over them, rising from the depths. Shadows in the shape of skulls, skulls that turned to mist, bodies locked together in lust, writhing and rolling and clawing. Through curtains of fire, great winged shadows wheeled against a hard blue sky. Being experienced readers of A Song of Ice and Fire as we are by this point, we can just tell when we come across a passage that the fandom will obsess over and dissect and look for hidden meanings within, and our spidey sense in that regard is certainly firing right now. We do it every time we hear a vision, but now we actually get to be inside one. We've had dreams and the house of the undying, etc., but this is something different, so you know we're all up for it. And people far better than me have looked through, I'm sure, and this isn't a particular strength of mine, deciphering visions and all that kind of coded stuff. I'm sure there's hundreds of Reddit posts all over the place looking at what you see here and how to interpret them, so you might want to look at them as well, but let's have a crack ourselves, shall we? Let's break it down. 
Well, eyeless faces, we know that one. That's going to be coming up in a minute. We discussed it last time. And you have to wonder if the order of these visions is supposed to tell us something. This is the most pressing time-wise. It's literally around the corner. So maybe these do happen in order. Unsure. The next one, the Towers by the Sea part. Well, this could be Eastwatch, as Melisandre will herself assert later on, but there's a working theory, one that I prefer, that this actually could be Old Town, and she's foreseeing Euron's attack. The Ironborn are described as a tide or as bloody water in visions from both Jojen and Makoro at different times, so that makes sense, it tracks. We know that Old Town has the High Tower, and the Citadel probably has a few of their own as well, or maybe it's even being symbolic and the towers she sees are the many high tower children that we detailed in Feast. Maybe they're going down instead. And the rising from the depths line fits very, very well with popular ideas about Euron making a blood sacrifice and using it to raise krakens from the depths. Or maybe the Ironborn themselves just coming up from the depths because they're normally pretty low. I've heard others suggest Pike as well, but I'm definitely on Team Old Town for this. It seems too easy later on when Mel confidently declares it to be Eastwatch because typically that kind of announcement means you're wrong. So I fully expect this to be a signal of Euron and the Old Town attack, and I think that's coming up, even though it's obviously got nothing to do with Melisandre, who's on the opposite side of Westeros, because this is going to be such a big event that it's, it's rippling out across the, whatever you want to call it, the magical realm or whatever. And I say that because later on today, in our last chapter, Makoro, he's doing the same thing, he's making visions, and he sees the same thing. He sees something that's a lot more clearly supposed to be Euron and whatever's going on there. So I think, you remember before the Red Wedding came up, we started seeing visions of it before. And we said back then, it's probably because it's such a major, major event in terms of, I don't know what the word, like mysticism, whatever you want to call it, the mystical. It's just so important that it's kind of rippling out. I think that Euron's attack is going to be this similar vein. Something very, very bad and evil and cataclysmic and influential so i think that's why it's popping up in all these visions in different parts of the world parts of the world that can't do anything about it they aren't anywhere near but that's how important it is so i'm pretty convinced on that one now the shadows in the shape of skulls this is probably the hardest for me to figure out to be honest the skulls supposedly mean danger or death well that makes sense but then it heads straight into a description of bodies locked in passion so i don't know maybe it's hinting that some sexual relationship will end in danger and death we're about to get some descriptive passages about Danny and Dario down the line, and he's pretty dangerous, but it'd be an odd thing for the fire to bring up, you'd think. Although, having said that, it does move right onto dragons after, so maybe, but I'm a bit stumped by that one, to be honest. Let me know what you think. And we finish with these winged shadows and curtains of fire, which, again, obviously makes you think of dragons. And a blue sky probably makes us think of Essos, considering where winter is in Westeros, so maybe it's a hint that Danny will eventually use them in the field, or perhaps this is just their breaking out later. We know that does happen, so that's possible as well. All of that is very interesting, and it's a lot of food for thought for both us and Mel, but also it's quite telling about the nature of fire visions. Firstly, there's no easy select menu. Apparently, the fire will just show whatever it wants to, and you have to lump it. There doesn't seem to be any way in which Melisandre can manipulate it. She's just a servant. It shows what it shows. She looks and tries her best. That's it. So we already have one of our previous questions answered as we see that the visions are fleeting and unclear. Some are like little snippets of something, like you're watching through a window. Some are much more symbolic in nature, so we can see why interpretation can be so hard. And Mel is having trouble finding the right channel at the moment. She wants to see the girl on the horse again because she knows she wants to chip away at John's resolve a bit more and persuade him to come over to her way of thinking like we saw at the end of his last chapter. And the vision of the girl is the way to do that. And note that she never says, John's sister or the Stark girl or anything like that, only the girl. So he might be getting a little hint of her manipulation of John here already. 
She also mentions that she's only seen that vision once, which means she's putting an awful lot of pressure on that one vision. Does frequency play a role? Is the more times you see it, the more likely it's going to happen? Makes sense, but we don't know. Well, apparently not, because the girl on the horse only appeared once, yet we know that one is actually true and straightforward. There is going to be a girl on a horse. Just because Melisandre gets it wrong, it's not the vision's fault, is it? It seems like the fire is pretty damn fickle, though. More about this note of the vision girl crumbling and blowing away, because again, we know nothing happens to her on the road. Were the chances at that time that the vision showed that she would die, perhaps? Maybe. And it's also worth mentioning that she asked the fire for the vision of Stannis, but then also wanted to see the horse girl as well. So perhaps if she was clearer with her wants, the fire would respond in kind. Anyway, the vision returns now, and this time it's actually clearer to us than it is to Melisandre, as she sees a white wooden face appearing with a thousand eyes and one, and then a boy with a wolf's face howling. And clearly, we know this is Blood Raven and Bran up there in the cave. Far, far more interestingly, is Melisandre noting that he, Blood Raven, sees her, and on top of that, she wonders if he is the enemy. Now that seems major, if I'm honest. Why does Blood Raven consider her the enemy? Why does she think he might be the enemy? Is this because he is good and trying to save the world and thinks that Melisandre will destroy it? Or is it because he's actually bad and Melisandre is the good one? Is it the simple fact of two opposite religions and belief systems going up against one another, the two big representatives of ice and fire about to duke it out? Well, it, it certainly could be. And again, this, this just seems huge. I'm not sure what to say about it. We've never been supplied with the idea of these two sides being in conflict with each other. So are they actually going to come to blows at some point? I mean, that sounds like it'd be a pretty big deal and pretty devastating, doesn't it? That kind of power being wielded around. Does that mean that Bran is going to become Isis champion and Jon will become Fires? Yeah, easily. Or is it a matter of them both looking toward the same goal but having different ideas on how to reach it? Is it a matter of them both thinking, well, I want to defeat the others, and then thinking that because they're the opposite, they represent a different religion, that they must be against them? Is it that kind of foolish thinking? Is this just another part of the lesson of needing to put old arguments aside for the larger problem? Or do they have good reason to be at each other's throats? Unfortunately, this plays into a bit of the more problematic thinking that Melisandre has where everything has to be straight down the middle. It's black or white. The onion is rotten or it's not. You're evil or good. Which is obviously not how the real world works. That's one of the biggest themes of George's work. So that's going to come and bite her at some point. And maybe this is it. Maybe it perfectly is that they're both going for the same goal, but if you're not my friend, you're my enemy type thinking hinders them and they both end up not doing what they're supposed to could easily see that that seems like something that would be keeping in the rest of the story so again I, I don't know i just have to call it major this seems like it's going to be a really really big point in the story going forward these two massive forces coming up against each other and while they seem aware of each other like historically almost Melisandre has been burning trees all the way up here so i'm sure that has pissed off blood raven in some way and then we've got to all think well what does this actually mean for bran because to be fair we've wondered plenty of times before what side is blood raven actually on what is he doing with Bran? What's his end goal? So for all we know, Melisandre has struck gold here and she's absolutely right. And Blood Raven is evil if we can categorize it that simply. Again, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing. I would have to think a bit more about this, but just put a pin in this one because I really, really think we're going to look back at some point and think, oh, that's the first time this came up and it's really going to be a big part of the end game. I'm going to have to think about this one some more. We'll have to come back to it another time. We've got Bran next time, so maybe that'll be a good time. Anyway, let's get back to Melisandre from now. Because from there, things get even weirder and we actually begin to wonder if we're still in the vision or whether this following quote is all internal. The red priestess shuddered. Blood trickled down her thigh, black and smoking. The fire was inside her, an agony, an ecstasy, filling her, searing her, transforming her. Shimmers of heat traced patterns on her skin, insistent as a lover's hand. Strange voices called to her from days long past. 
Melanie, she heard a woman cry, and a man's voice called Lot Seven. She was weeping, and her tears were flame, and still she drank it in. So how literal is this passage? Is she truly bleeding, or is this kind of a half-memory, half-internal feeling? She'll see in a minute how much of the self-reading these flames requires, and how it can be a painful price to pay. So maybe she's just having to pay it right now. Maybe this is her truly connecting with her god again. But at least some of it seems negative, and she's doing all this in reaction to Bran's howling. So again, it comes straight away. What does it mean? Does it mean that Bran or Blood Raven hold some kind of power over her? Are they her weakness in some way? Or maybe this is her just throwing herself back into the arms of the law after the glimpse of the supposed enemy. So many, many questions. Not enough answers, of course. At the very least, we can say that the fire is a part of her. There's an even, it's like a sexual element to all of this with the mention of ecstasy and a lover's hand. We already know that she uses that side of things in her powers and magic, so that makes sense. But there's also this briefest glimpse into her past of Melanie, who we can seem to be her, being called out by a woman, likely a mother, maybe a sister, and then a man calling Lot Seven, which obviously makes us think that Mel was once a slave. So you can see how these threads do love to intertwine, can't you? Melisandre is a thousand, thousand miles away from Slaver's Bay and all that kind of storyline, and yet the themes are crossing over once again. From there, it's back to the visions with more things to try and interpret. At first, it looks like we're seeing a snowstorm, and we might think she's finally getting her Stannis vision, but then things become more specific and we have to wonder. Snowflakes swirled from a dark sky and ashes rose to meet them, the grey and the white whirling around each other as flaming arrows arced over a wooden wall and dead things shambled silent through the cold, beneath a great grey cliff where fires burned inside a hundred caves. Then the wind rose and the white mist came sweeping in, impossibly cold, and one by one the fires went out. Afterward, only the skulls remained. So let's do the same thing, let's break it down into chunks here. So, well the first part, that just seems like a storm, doesn't it? Or the coming of the others, because we've seen that already. But flaming arrows over a wooden wall. Well, we know there's wooden walls at Deepwood Mart and Bear Island and probably half a hundred other places too. But the fact that they are flaming arrows and taking the context from the rest of the passage in terms of the coming cold, etc., it certainly seems that this indicates fighting against whites and it's probably at Hardhome. Then comes the cliff with fires. And later on, John will mention about fires being seen in the mountains by the Shadow Tower, so it could be there. But then we'll also learn about the wildlings hiding in caves at Hardhome too, so that seems to fit a bit better with everything else. Then there's the white mist coming in and fires all going out until everything left is death. And that seems to be pretty straightforward for representing a gigantic attack by the others, a mass killing of the remaining wildlings and leaving only death behind, as in the walking dead of the whites. So everything really adds up to what we figure is going to happen at Hardhome, which is a great chapter sequencing because we discussed the possibility of Davos being a witness or even being involved in such a tragedy last week. And as we said then, this could be the second fist in terms of Fist of the First Men. The huge event that actually reveals the others to the wider world somewhat, as well as majorly, majorly boosting their numbers as they prepare to finally move on the wall. Again, pretty important stuff, you see what I mean. And the fire is not done. After showing only death, the fire tells her of Jon Snow, lined by tongues of red and orange, likely hinting that his blood is half fire, but that that is half hidden as well. She sees man, then wolf, then man again, which we probably think is an ode to warging, or maybe is a hint to his future beginning in winds. Enemies all around him, daggers in the dark. He would not listen. Unbelievers never listened until it is too late. So unfortunately, we confirm that Mel also isn't faking it with her warnings to John, even though we've probably gathered enough of that feeling for ourselves already. This just adds another layer of realness to it for us though. John is in danger. The tension is rising as the book progresses. Something is going to happen at some point. And that's big, not just because John is one of our Triforce, one of our core characters that we obviously care about because he's a member of House Stark, 
but also because he might be the key to saving the world. If he goes down, what hope is there for the ball, really, and for humanity? Yet now she could not even seem to find her king. I pray for a glimpse of Azora High, and the law shows me only snow. Ah, now, I know you know this one. This is the famous quote that much of the fandom always comes back to, thanks to the capitalisation of snow at the end there. But I say, let's not fall into the trap of prophecy. We've had plenty of reasons to suggest that John is going to save the world. For me, personally, he doesn't require the arbitrary title of a random religion to make that true. He'll save it because he's capable and willing and he's a good person. I don't think he needs to be Azor High to fill that role. And unfortunately, that's, that's a trap that many people within the story do fall into so let's try and resist that ourselves he's important no matter who he is is my point it does hint at the mistake of stannis though if john is azor high that must mean stannis isn't again assumedly i like the theory that azor high is a collection of people i'm sure you've read that in various places i would really like it if someone's to ever click that and accept it but even if it does happen they'll be too foolish and insisting that no their translation their belief is right and that it can't be a team of people that'll annoy me when we come to it but for anyway right now it seems like there will be a fallout when that all eventually comes out both for stannis and mel's faith in her own ability We've seen examples of that in the show. And as the visions wrap up, there's actually another boy present that we've not even discussed yet. It's Devon, son of Davos. He's also present to all this magic and fire gazing, which suggests that the blood on the fire was a feeling rather than literal because he hasn't reacted to Melisandre looking like she's injured or moving or thrashing or anything like that. It looks to him like she's just been staring, apparently. Now, like I mentioned last week, I have extreme reservations about Devon being in Castle Black, considering the extreme danger coming his way at the end of the book. But also, what worries me is his continual fall into the region of the law. I really don't want him to be made into a fanatic or made to do something he doesn't want to. Again, I don't want to repeat myself because I've said it before, how he maybe he'll be made to trick Shireen or be involved in her burning. Maybe she's got tied to the tree or something like that. But no, I don't want that. Melisandre believes though that she is saving his life by keeping him here rather than letting him go with Stannis as he wants which to be fair seems dead on because Deepwood would have been safe enough sure but the march to Winterfell easily could have killed him Stannis's squire Brian Farring does die so easily Devon could have been in that spot and then Stannis would have felt that loss even more if Davos's eldest son had died in his care we do get this nice little passage about her wanting to be kind to Davos and not wanting to suffer anymore that seems kind of special given their relationship in Storm. And it's pretty cool that she knows that Davos is loyal. And again, we don't need a fire to tell us that, but it is nice to see written down here. Mel thinks on how she can manipulate Devon thanks to his own desires, as well as some intimidation to go along with it. And you can sense she's kind of well-practiced at swaying men in this fashion. And to be fair, it certainly works. We've seen the evidence of that. But she also looks on how he's pretty much the best of the guards that Stannis has left her. Which seems an odd choice from Stannis, given her importance to him, but I guess he needs every man he can get when it's time for war, and he's putting his faith in Jon to keep her safe. And that's a good bet, until Jon is stabbed and all hell breaks loose. I'm really hoping we're not being told about how rubbish her guard is, so they're set up for wild black brothers or wildlings or even the guards themselves to try and attack Melisandre in the beginning of Winds. I don't want to see her go through that, I don't want to see Devon have to try and defend her, because you know a son of Davos would do just that. Maybe she would unveil some cool firepowers to defend them both, but I'd rather not take the risk if I'm being honest. No, thank you. And maybe she has faith in the law to play defence, but, well, I'll leave that to her. Like I say, that's enough of fire gazing right now, but it turns out she's been at it for ages. She doesn't ever sleep, she's been doing this all night. So is that something to do with the averseness to darkness? She doesn't want to sleep because, close your eyes and it's dark. Perhaps it is. Or is it, again, the love of fire? Whichever way you want to look at it, it doesn't look like she likes dreams either. In fact, she says as much as she doesn't. So maybe she's just trying to avoid the memory of slavery or other dark parts in her past. 
But the thing to focus on here is that she doesn't sleep. She doesn't need to sleep, apparently. Which begs the obvious question, what is she then? How can she not need sleep? Is that just one of her powers that she's given herself? Or is she perhaps some kind of fire white? Because who else have we seen not need sleep? Beric Dondarrion and Lady Stoneheart to a lesser extent. So now we're starting to really wonder, hey, again, what is she? Is she alive? Is she undead? Well, we'll come back to that in a moment. We've got some small notes to take care of first. Firstly, the fact that her bed has been empty since Stannis left. Hmm, away, oh, hey, hey. There's, I think we all know what that means, don't we? And that's a pretty big confirmation that we've never really had before, even if most of us have just kind of assumed that was the situation. So, hmm, yeah, pretty big one. And also, before we move on, she's classifying the enemy as one singular enemy above the wall. So is it just that she's wrong and she doesn't know the truth about the others, of which we've seen multiple and we've assumed it's like a race type thing? Or is there actually a Night King figure leading the others in some way? Is there a great other? And again, she mentions that Blood Raven is on his side, that they are his servants. And again, that's huge. She might be wrong, but we have wondered these very things ourselves and now we're finally having that fire stoked. So it's just incredibly interesting. And I don't know how else to say it. I'm going to say it again, major, 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 major. And possibly it really fits with Bran as well in terms of, again, we've seen him maybe going down a dark way. Is that Blood Raven leading him that way and Bran will rebel and become good again? Or is it the opposite? We don't know. Questions, questions. Okay, let's go back to this uh, what is she question. Here's another quote. Food. Yes, I should eat. Some days she forgot. Relor provided her with all the nourishment her body needed. But that was something best concealed from mortal men. So those Beric vibes really boom in our ears now. Mel apparently doesn't need to eat. And again, the only group that we've found that can do that are fire whites, and probably normal whites as well, you'd assume. So does that mean that she is one of their rank? She does say mortal men, as though she's not included in that group. Make of that what you will. So our main question is whether she's a fire white, a more advanced one, as she clearly hasn't suffered the same deterioration of mind and memory that Beric did, or whether this is a new group entirely that also don't need sleep or sustenance. Again, what is she? That's our big question. Is this magic or religion or what? Whatever it is, it's obviously something she's used to and plans around, and it's something else for everyone to discover at some point. Plus, it's yet another connection to the beginning of Winds. Who better to know how to bring back someone from the dead if maybe they've done it themselves already? And speaking of Jon Snow, is he that she wishes to focus on again now? And this is where she thinks of the trappings of power thing that we discussed a few episodes ago. She advocates that Jon needs to embrace some of these trappings in order to keep his position and needs to get over the false pride of youth, that's what she says. There is likely truth in that, elements of it at least, but I'm still a pretty big fan of John's approach personally. I just like him paying respect to Don Onoy. Besides, she also gives him props for some of the nuances of power and politics, like demanding that she come to him and then keep her waiting when she arrives, etc. etc. It's all that court bullshit that John would probably rather do without, in all honesty, but we do know that he knows how to play this game and he needs to play to get the right results, unfortunately. We've already seen him do brilliantly with Stannis and others. He's incredibly aware of the situation and how to read the room, etc. So it's at least nice that we get to see some recognition of his skills, finally. But instead of sending for John, she actually sends for Rattleshirt, which is a bit curious for a first-time reader. We know there's a connection between the two of them, and that Rattleshirt, quote-unquote, is apparently bound to her, but we don't know why or how Mel is using him or any of those details, so it's pretty exciting that we might find out. Plus, we just got a boatload of Rattleshirt last week in John's chapter, when he kicked John's ass, so it's interesting to follow up on that. While Devon disappears to find her target, we get even more of the intricate details that we've been precisely hoping for in this chapter. This now is the lifting of the curtain stuff, the behind the scenes and the how to do it. Ever since Maester Crescent died from that poison drink while she kept living, we've had to wonder about this woman and that we finally get some answers. Some, not all, but more than zero. And then the truth is, at the beginning here, as we've so often guessed at, 
Mostly it's all for show. She's a magician, an illusionist of sorts. She carries tricks literally up her sleeves with this amazing assortment of powders. And some are all for the visual, there to adjust whatever performance she's giving, whether that's to the people of Dragonstone, to the wildlings, maybe to Stannis himself. I personally wonder if she's going to use this green powder to trick someone into thinking they're fighting wildfire at some point. It could be useful. You can make a fire more intimidating or larger just when you need to, right at the important part of the pitch. Maybe you're convincing someone of your control of it or telling them to look for a sign. So it's all very clever stuff, all very much tricks of the trade. And we can only guess at how many people she's manipulated with it in this way. But even more interesting is that she can actually influence people's emotions or habits with some of these powders. A smoke for truth or lust or even with the ability to kill someone. We can imagine how incredibly useful each of these potentially are and we're again wondering at her history, just what has she been up to? The truth one is obviously inexplicably valuable in a world such as this, but you also wonder if she used the lust smoke on stony old Stannis to get her shadow assassin originally. And as much as we wonder about the past, what of the future? Are we going to see her weaponize these special powders at some point, these special smokes? I sure hope so, because that would be pretty damn cool to see. But then again, how do they even work? Powders to change the colour of flames or make them spit or whatever are all acceptable as matters of showmanship, but the influencing of human emotion is far more powerful. It does tie into the theory of candles being able to do similar elsewhere in the series, but these seem altogether more potent. As much as Melisandre is showmanships, and sometimes a bit of bullshit as well, we also know she has legit magical dark powers. We've seen it right up in front of our face, right from the off, again with that continuing to live past the poison drink, and plenty of time since. And that is also explored now, as we look inside this carved chest that we've never even told about. All the cool wizards in your childhood tales had some kind of mystical chest that contained all their many wonders, the best possible example being the vicious luggage of Rincewind from the Discworld books. Yeah, that is easily the best one, the one with the little legs. Powders are apparently only half the equation. She has spells as well, spells that are made more powerful just by being near the wall, which we've always been so desperate to hear about because the wall is like our biggest mystery, literally. As per usual with George, it's a mixed matter. Yes, Melisandre is a trickster, a very talented presenter, but she also very clearly has real powers. She implies here that the powders and tricks are what she's had to rely on to get by in the past, a foundation where his actual power was to be used rarely, sparingly. But now she's here, she's fully charged, and again, that idea is very, very exciting for us. What is she going to do with all these sorceries that she mentions? What shadows will she create? And let's make note that she's running out of ingredients and powders, so there's the atmosphere of time running out as well. And one more interesting note is that she says she's also powerful as shy, so we're wondering what the magical power source is there, as in contrast to the wall. Such mysteries will have to wait for another time, unfortunately, because we are unknowingly about to see a true display of power, one that we had zero idea was really possible in this manner when Rattleshirt arrives and we get closer to the chapter's big reveal. We get hints right from the beginning with this description. He was cloaked in shadows too, in wisps of ragged grey mist, half seen, sliding across his face and form with every step he took. We'll find the reason why Mel is seeing this in a moment, but to the first time it seems like she's just kind of seeing visions around the man, like an aura almost. Maybe she sees it around all people, for all we know, we're just none the wiser at the moment. Mel mentions that her ruby is warm in the presence of its slave, and that's another of the countless details we've been dying to hear about ever since we were introduced to this character. <laughs> just, there's so many to discuss. But this is the nature of the ruby, why it pulses, what power is contained within it. Apparently it can now bind people too, so what else can it do? We, we get to find out. The fact that it's warm is especially interesting as we obviously know that it shouldn't be, so what the hell is this thing? At the beginning of the conversation between Rattleshirt and Melisandre, everything seems pretty straightforward. 
She wants him to wear a suit of bones for protection, and we figure, first-timers, that she means the literal armour against the blade, and probably only the very eagle-eyed first-timer would wonder why Rattleshirt is complaining about their clacking when he's been wearing them as long as we've known him. Besides, we're probably distracted from that in the first instance by Rattleshirt's account of overhearing Bowen Marsh over at the fire, and Bowen getting all indignant at this overhearing. We all figure this is, of course, him plotting against John in some way, and him, him getting really worried about being caught out when charged with treason. Perhaps it hasn't progressed to actual murder yet, plotting actual murder, or maybe it has. But it seems pretty certain that this is the case, he's doing something he shouldn't be. But what's more interesting to that is if Mance slash Rattleshirt actually heard something concrete and decided to keep it to himself, maybe he did that thanks to resentment of John. That could be interesting. After that, we get the quick note on Melisandre always checking the flames for personal danger first, as we covered way back in Davos's old chapters. Whether that is 100% effective or also a matter of interpretation, we don't know, but we might find out one day. We also have confirmation of what we figured earlier on in the chapter. Melisandre, Melanie, was a slave, given over to the Red Temple as a child, like Jorah told Tyrion about last week. So any number of horrors could now conceivably be included in our history. And from here, we get a lot more direct in what's going on. Instead of going all out with one big mic drop moment for his reveal, George just plays on our suspicions by laying it all out slowly for our minds to finally click. They just say it, as though it's the most normal thing in the world. First, we have confirmation that this is indeed a glamour. Rattleshirt just out and out says it while he's talking about his own ruby in the fetter on his wrist and the magic it has over him, before Melisandre comes right out and tells us that this is a spell of disguise and deceit. And even that is one of George's mixing. It isn't easy magic that you might see in other worlds, there's no clicking of fingers or wrinkling your nose. This is a magic rooted in something physical, in this case, the bones. But we've seen it with blood or buildings before, and Mel tells us that it's also built into manipulation, playing on expectations and mental weaknesses, people seeing what they expect to see. It's all tied in together, the trickery right alongside the actual true sorcery. So we know it's a glamour, we know it's a spell, we obviously now assume this isn't really Rattleshirt. So the obvious question is, well, who is it then? And many of us will have gone straight to Mance because who else would be such a major addition to the story and who would need to be hidden? But to be honest, we don't even have time to wonder because George is happy with just straight up almost telling us, I've sung my songs, fought my battles, drunk summer wine, tasted the Dornishman's wife, a man should die the way he's lived, for me that's steel in hand. Ah, the Dornishman's wife, a song we instantly associate with a one man. A man that's supposed to be dead, so would therefore need a glamour. A man the Night's Watch would want to kill if he suddenly turned up, as Mel says, so that checks out. And now we're racing our minds back through everything we've seen of Rattleshirt since the burning and the hammer drops because it all completely fits. Especially what he was saying to John prior to their duel last week. And of course, the duel! How, how could we forget? Yes, doesn't that take on a whole new level of importance now? Not only were we unknowingly watching two major characters with a very, very complicated relationship go at each other, we were also seeing how skilled Mance is as we discussed in that John chapter. It's all but confirmed for us when Melisandre talks of the Weeper's work being found this very day as she previously prophesied and Rattleshirt, yeah we know you're not Rattleshirt, begins rattling off all this knowledge about the nature of the Weeper and John's mistake in thinking that all wildlings would go over to Tormund who unfortunately gets called an old fool here which is a shame. I'm very interested to see more of the mance torn relationship now especially after Tormund's deal with John later on. So first timers are just left flabbergasted that this has apparently just been confirmed that Mance is actually stood right in front of us and assumedly Rattleshirt therefore died in the fire which makes his denials just before the burning make much more sense and we've just got to catch up to this being the new fact like I say they just say it as if we've always known. Mance a massively important character is still alive and he's inside Castle Black so what does that mean this is a pretty big deal. Is he going to harm John? What's the nature of his relationship with Melisandre? Why are they working together and to what end? There are a lot of questions to fill our minds, yet George just keeps rolling right along and making us play catch-up. For example, 
If Mance is worried about the Weeper and says that it's not good, then we really want to know why and what the future effect will be. Plus, Mance is saying it's not good for John or us. Well, we want to know about the us, him and Melisandre. Again, what are their goals? Because it's all a mystery so far. Unfortunately, we see Melisandre is playing the deception card even now. She presents one face to Mance as someone being interested and caring, but behind the face is a mind convinced that the wildlings are a mere detail now and one living on borrowed time. They are apparently doomed and destined to disappear, which is sad because there's plenty of wildlings we like, as well as specific aspects of their culture. So does this mean that they're all going to die completely, or they'll slowly assimilate with the northerners now that they're south of the wall? It certainly indicates that the lands above the wall are lost forever now, that's what it seems to me. At least if Melisandre is correct in this assessment. We're about to see how wrong she can be, so maybe the wildlings are all going to be fine. But even acting on the assumption that her people are doomed and don't need to be worried about can be very important going forward. The girl, she said. A girl in grey on a dying horse. Jon Snow's sister. Who else could it be, she thought. So if we want to talk about Mel being wrong, then here it is. Her attitude and where she falls down, given to us completely on full display. Who else could it be, she said. This gigantic assumption that's almost arrogant in nature pretty much smacks of Varys and Illyro and their gigantic assumptions and basic that'll-do attitude. Alice Karstark is close enough to fit the bill for Melisandre and it fits the narrative she needs, so she'll run of it, she'll convince herself she's right. And we can explain her entire relationship with Stannis in the same way. He ticks just enough boxes and she needs an Azor high, so she'll run with it. The whole thing is built of matchsticks and is such a bad idea in general. We'll see how wrong she is about this particular vision later on in the book, but I don't think we've seen how bad the fallout of Melisandre assumptions can actually be. We'll probably save that for when the truth about Stannis comes out, or maybe she's going to make an even worse prediction later on. And of course, there's the ultimate irony that if Melisandre was right, and this was the Aya that everyone thinks it is, it wouldn't actually be Aya, would it? Because it's Jane, so she's actually wrong twice at once. As for why she's bringing it up, it's again a case of fitting narrative. She needs a way to earn Jon's trust, and saving Aya would achieve that. So she lets her mind fill in the blanks, and she figures she can enlist Mance to go and do it for her, because again, that fits perfectly, seeing as Mance slash Rattleshirt is not Night's Watch, and therefore can dodge Jon's vow barriers. Look how neatly it all fits together. Hmm. Melisandre, if you have read any of these novels, it's never that easy. You should be far more suspicious. But Mance is accepting the premise for now, and asks for more details. Melisandre says that Aya, quote-unquote, I'm saying that a lot in this chapter, aren't I? Is travelling the long way around Long Lake, in an area we've never really visited, heading north. And we're already pretty sure that this isn't Aya slash Jane, but now especially so, because how on earth would she have got to that place from the Bolton camp that we last saw entering Moat Kaelin on the other side of the kingdom? So we're pretty damn suspicious now. And also, what's the story behind Mance and these hidey holes? Side quest story, please, please, George? No? Alright. That line of thinking has to wait as a war horn sounds and the soldier slash former crow in Mance shows as he reacts instantly to the possibility of wildlings or much, much worse. Not today though, luckily, it's just rangers, the ones that Melisandre has been waiting for. So Mance gets left behind and Mel enters a new section of the chapter as she marches beneath the wall, out to the other side, through an already tense Castle Black, what with Jon already being out there and archers being placed atop the wall. It's mentioned several times that people part out of the way for her, and part of that is her keeping her guards around her, acting confident, these trappings of power that she's so invested in. Really, it's just another part of the performance of her, isn't it? On the other side of the wall, we find what we've already been warned about and what we discussed at length in John's last chapter. The heads of Blackjack Bulwer, Harry Hal, and Garth Greyfeather, eyeless and stuck on poles. I know I've brought this up before, so I won't focus on it too much right now, but I really wonder if the physical eyes have something to do with being reanimated or being made into a white. There's some obsession with eyes in this part of the world. There's the Weeper, the Thousand Eyes and One stuff, multiple visions that we've seen of blue eyes and 
focus on certain people's eyes. I can't remember at what point I actually brought this up before, but I'm honestly wondering if physically having eyes left on a corpse has something to do with the whites or others. Anyway, that's a sidetrack. Let's leave that there. What we really need to focus on is what this moment means for John. It's a very interesting choice by George not to do this moment in John's head, but then we already know the extreme weight and guilt that he's feeling in this very moment. We discussed it at length last time round, and it's taken a mere two-chapter gap for all his worries to come true. He sent men to their deaths, very painful deaths at that. Just three here at the moment, but maybe all nine have gone for all he knows. They were innocent men. Well, not, not Alistair, but the rest were innocent men doing the duty that he gave them, and he gambled with their lives and lost. And on top of that, as we covered, it's three less men, at least, to a watch already devoid of bodies. The Weeper is in close vicinity and still hostile, and everybody is going to know that he was wrong. It can't get much worse, can it? Well, Bo Marsh, who is the last guy that John must want around him at the moment, tells us that the ground is frozen, and it would have taken hours to drive these spears so deep. So they are also very ballsy wildlings, willing to come this close to the wall, and Castle Black never even knew doesn't spell a whole lot of confidence for protecting the vast length of the wall, does it? John makes the solemn command to pull the heads down, at the same time that Beaumarsh essentially says, told you so, just to salt the wounds, and then he notices Melisandre. Just as she hoped, it's now that he wants to talk to her, now that he's really invested in what she can offer, having just been given such obvious proof that she has something to offer, so they pass back beneath the wall together. And quick side note here before we get into their conversation, this is the first other POV to see John through their eyes instead of his own, aside from Sam, since the beginning of Game of Thrones. Right at the start of that book, we saw him through Bran and Tyrion's eyes, and maybe Ned's very, very briefly, I can't remember. And ever since then, it's just been Sam. I bring this up only because it occurs to me now that we still have never seen Daenerys through anyone's eyes other than her own. Quentin doesn't have a POV chapter until after she's gone, and neither does Barristan. And assumedly, this is massively going to chain in winds with maybe Barry, Tyrion, and Victorian, and who knows, maybe there's more as well. Anyway, that is just a side note, I apologise. For now, we have these two, and Melisandre is playing more trappings of power games while they walk until Jon finally accepts that he might need her help and asks about the other six men. But Mel can't help him with that so far, and even if she promises to try, we've just seen how little control she has over such. Jon informs us that he's had even more worries added since we were last with him. Dennis Manister has told of fires in the mountains and wildlings massing, potentially to try their luck again on the Bridge of Skulls. Melisandre looks for connections to her via visions, which she figures she must spend a lot of her day doing. Every time she hears some piece of news, she has to compare notes on what the flames have said. Her first thought is that the skulls in the dream could represent the Bridge of Skulls, but decides that they don't. Is there any reason, or is that based on any evidence? No, not so much, it's just a hunch. She's just going to wing it. Yet she seems to completely miss that she also saw a cave with fires in a mountain, so we can see how much human error is really included in these interpretations, which makes it so damn dangerous when she declares that any such attack would only be a diversion and that they really need to watch Eastwatch. John has just had a large display of her power. He's going to get stuck into whatever she says, so her displaying utter confidence despite not possessing all the evidence is pure irresponsibility. There will be consequences. How can she confidently say an attack on the Shadow Tower would only be a mere distraction and therefore not worth reacting to properly? She's acting on little more than educated guesswork and again, I say there are going to be real consequences of this line of thinking further down the line. Plus, just to add this in, consider the logistics of a force of wildlings coordinating and communicating from the Shadow Tower and Eastwatch effectively. Just think of the distance between those two parties. Who says one is a distraction for the other? They could both be the main attack, led by different groups completely independent from each other. 
Again, I say this is playing fast and loose with people's lives that Melisandre clearly only sees as playing pieces. Instead, she puts all her money on Eastwatch, again thanks to the Vision, despite us thinking that the sight of towers and a bloody tide might actually mean Old Town. See what I mean about it saying it's so fickle, it's just dangerous, and ultimately, there's an element of self-fulfilling prophecy in it as well. Jon is truly playing with fire here. Mel is all confidence though with that public face, but yet again, behind the mask, something different is going on. She actually has no idea if it's Eastwatch. She even admits that the towers look different and just puts it down to the flames being coy. So again, do you see what I mean about the danger that Melisandre wields? Killer smoke and shadow babies are bad enough, but this might be her most dangerous ability by far. The sheer influence she has based on such a rickety system. It's one thing using it on smaller scale things like Aya slash Alice, but this affects a huge policy of the Night's Watch. Jon is going to focus on Eastwatch for the remainder of this book, and maybe for good reason, but it's just as likely there's a huge strike at the Shadow Tower as well, and then what? It's a dangerous, dangerous game. This is just one example. I think we're going to get bigger and bigger ones as we go forward. After emerging back in Castle Black and delivering the unfortunate news to his brothers, Jon agrees to come back to the King's Tower of Melisandre and to go back alone. Off they trot together, and maybe Jon should have taken the optics of such a bit more seriously. It's one thing just going off of Melisandre, but doing it immediately after a tragic moment of crisis seems to say he is now relying on her for support and advice. That isn't going to help with the whispers, either the ones that Jon needs help and is in over his head, or that he has forces other than the Night's Watch in his interest. Melisandre has this to think as they go up. He does not love me, will never love me, but he will make use of me. Well and good. Melisandre danced the same dance with Stannis Baratheon back in the beginning. In truth, the young Lord Commander and her king had more in common than either one would be ever willing to admit. The only gods they truly worshipped were honour and duty. Jon might have admitted to himself that Melisandre does indeed have power as he felt it in his last chapter, and the death of men he sent into the wild is clearly enough for him to bypass his clever worries of getting mixed up with someone of the shadow because he's basically out of options. He needs any help he can get even if he doesn't personally like it, just as Danny is doing on a lesser degree with Hisdar. But all that doesn't mean that he has to like it, or trust her in the slightest, as Mel senses here. But she's probably used to that, and used to getting past her as well, as she once did with Stannis. And many readers will now be rejoiced to see that note of how common the two men are, even if Mel misses the point that if they're that common, then one could very easily slip into the slot that she has allocated for the other. Mel knows that she's just scored a major victory in the getting John to trust her game, now that Vision has proven her right. But really, that was a show of ability, not intent. He still widely regards her as dangerous and untrustworthy, so she needs something else to persuade him that she is a good person genuinely trying to help him so that his full trust will come. And what I find interesting that doesn't come up is that we never really learn what it is she's trying to build up trust for. Something big, no doubt. Is this all the first steps of making more shadow babies? Or maybe she's already building up to needing to burn someone, possibly even Shireen? That's not outside the realm of possibility, even though we think that would never ever happen with John. Anyway, to that end, she tries to bring up the eye thing again, because there will obviously need to be some wall breaking in terms of getting John to accept that he can do something about Aya in a legal slash moral sense. But that is interrupted when John steps into the chambers and sees what he thinks is Rattleshirt. John would not be pleased to see this guy at any time, but most especially after he knocked you about with ease in the training yard last week. And matters unexactly improved when Mance talks about how easily he could come and slit John's throat in the night if he wanted to. Although we do get a hint about him going over the wall when we know that Rattleshirt hasn't done that, so a hint to what we've already basically had confirmed. Or even worse, he starts bringing up Egret and insinuating that John betrayed her. Yeah, that isn't a good wound to pick out. Luckily, he doesn't give John time to react, instead turning to Mel and making demands about what he'll need if he's to complete this mission, giving us a whole bunch of building blocks for the later Winterfell slash Abel storyline. John is obviously clueless about this and he wants to know what the hell's going on. When Mel suggests that Rattleshirt be the one to go and save Aya, he loses it. Are you guys insane? 
Rattleshirt is one of the worst people John's ever met, and you want to subject Aya to him? No chance. John is already regretting coming up here, regretting putting any stock in Mel's words at all, and is probably about to just walk out. And also, claiming that Mel has ashes in her eyes is also a damn fine way of describing her vision abilities. So, Melisandre's hand is forced. Melisandre touched the ruby at her neck and spoke a word. The sound echoed queerly from the corners of the room and twisted like a worm inside their ears. The wildling heard one word, the crow another, and evil as the word left her lips. The ruby on the wildling's wrist darkened, and the wisps of light and shadow around him writhed and faded. Unreliable flame visions are one thing, but we came into this chapter hoping we'd see some new, hidden magic that was completely unknown to us, and we finally get it. Again, Mel's power is linked to sound, just like last week when we discussed if music was the ultimate magical controlling ability in this series. This time it is a mere word, but one that sounds different to the individual, which I find fascinating. Will we see more of this from the horns as well? Can they do the same thing? And then there are the two rubies working in tandem as the glamour breaks down until only bones remain, and this time they cover Mance freaking Raider. Jon Snow has seen some things in this time, but short of the whites themselves, this might just take the biscuit. Jon Snow's grey eyes grew wider. Mance? Lord Snow? Mance Raider did not smile. She burned you. She burned the Lord of Bones. Jon Snow turned to Melisandre. What sorcery is this? Sorcery? Quite. You're on the money there, Jon. On top of the sheer shock of seeing a dead man alive in front of him, this is obviously a pretty big deal to Jon. There's not many people in the world that it would be more important for him to speak with and what still needs to happen with the wildlings. This is an incredibly important player being returned to the board. It's like Tywin just walking back into King's Landing, and John knows it. The fat Mance isn't smiling at him is likely not a surprise at all. The whole thing is so mind-blowing that John doesn't even really get to take some enjoyment in the fact that Rattleshirt, the hated enemy, died screaming in a fire. Although I guess it would also annoy him to learn that that's who he actually put out of their misery. Mm, wasted arrow. So now we get some details of how it all came about, both in terms of construction and agreement. For Mance, always a straight shooter in some ways, it came down to a simple choice. It was this, or be burnt, and he took the same choice that we all would. Mel then reminds us of what we said earlier, about much of magic being rooted in something physical, but then also drops a little bomb. The bones help, said Melisandre. The bones remember. The strongest glamours are built of such things. A dead man's boots, a hang of hair, a bag of finger bones. A bag of freaking finger bones. Come on, how in the world are you going to use that as an example? How many bags of finger bones have you ever seen, Melisandre? This is obviously, absolutely connected to Davos, and George is cruelly playing with our minds again. Surprise, surprise. As so many have argued before, does this mean that Melisandre one day intends on making a Davos Seaworth glamour? Now, Davos's finger bones should be at the bottom of Blackwater Bay, and most will argue that if Melisandre does somehow have them, it's kind of unbelievable. But that's not to say completely out of the realm of possibility. I've seen it argued that she stole Davos's finger bones from around his neck before the Battle of the Blackwater. Maybe she uses some of this smoke to put him to sleep or something. Well, that makes dramatic sense because as soon as he loses his finger bones, he nearly drowns and four of his sons die. So make of that what you will. But anyway, let's just say that she does have his actual finger bones. Firstly, be pretty fucking creepy. But also, what would she do with them? What would she do with this glamour? she use it to persuade Stannis of something? That seems most likely. Or maybe give an order as hand? It better have nothing to do with securing Shireen for burning, I'll tell you that much. The fact is, we can't even imagine what this could be used for. Or whether Mel just keeps such items handy for a rainy day. But the fact is, it could fit. We know Davos is going to be off rescuing someone or other in Skagos, so the opportunity is there. Real Davos isn't going to walk in to confuse the situation. And how cruel would it be for the image of Davos to be used in some nefarious way while he's out risking his life to save people, maybe even losing his own life in the process? And don't forget how this could all affect poor Devon. If he just sees his dad walk in the door, hmm, 
Anyway, that's yet another sidetrack, because there's a lot in this chapter. While Mel is explaining matters to Jon Snow, she is having very different private thoughts at the same time. Firstly, about how much such a spell had cost her, even here at the wall where her batteries are apparently supercharged. This is again the trappings of power and an emphasis on presentation. Make it look easy, and they start wondering what you could do if you really tried. But there's also this connection she had to the original rapture as he burned and her ruby burned with him. It's an almost warg-like ability to feel what the other end of the connection is feeling as another thing we have to wonder about in terms of the possibility we'll see that again somehow. Here is where she drops the hammer on a still bewildered John. Mance owes John a blood debt. Even though John figured he failed, his argument of the laws of men ending at the wall was heard and Mance was spared his burning, privately anyway. He provided the loophole for Melisandre to exploit which might set a pretty dangerous precedent for later, as the wall merges more and more of the living world, theoretically anyway. But back to the business of loopholes, Mel has just found another. John can save Aya without betraying his vows. It's the best of both worlds. She's not even asking for anything in return other than his acceptance. It's enough for her to just be considered an ally. And though it comes from the very last place John would have expected, Aya does have a saviour, so how can he possibly turn that down? And the fact of the matter is, he can't. This is basically a miracle for John, one, like we say, he couldn't have dreamed of. This is a legitimate way to save Aya that allows him to keep his vows, and therefore he's got to take it, even though there are several worries that he needs to take note of. The largest by far is this mega worry that you'll skip over the first time you see it, most likely. Melisandre believes they hold sway over Mance because they have his son in their possession. Except they don't, do they? And John knows that. Mance's son is down in Old Town. It's Gilly and Craster's son they hold, and at some point you have to figure that that is going to be found out and exposed and all hell is going to break loose. How will Melisandre react? How will Mance react? Well, probably not well, I'm going to guess. And John knows that, but he's not going to mention it now, not when there's an actual possibility of saving Aya. But what if Mance somehow discovered this news while still in possession of Aya? Well, we know that's never going to be an actual problem, but it should sure as hell bother John right in this moment, shouldn't it? Second to that is what Mance will want to do after this mission, or what he intends for the Wildlings. What is this little ploy that he's fought up? And for rereaders, we know this is really the start of hope and investment in saving Aya that will lead John to his doom, when it's assumed that Mance has failed thanks to Ramsay's letter. Much like Marine, we're going to finish this book with so, so many countless factors on the wall and at Winterfell, and what Mance will get up to in the castle with Jane and his own fate is definitely one of the most interesting. So this is clearly a very, very important part of setup for the entire rest of the book. Overall, we have this unofficial agreement between Melisandre and Jon. He's been tempted into making a deal with a pretty devil-looking woman in order to save Aya. The goal of that, the fallout, is still to be seen. The relationship is going to strengthen even further, you'd think, at the beginning of Winds. But to keep it in the here and now, there's few chapter endings that could bring out such excitement. And what a shame, it's our second goodbye in as many weeks. No, this one doesn't hit quite so hard as Davos because we don't know Mal in the same way, we don't love her in the same way, and she will actually remain in the book right until the end. But it's still a shame that this is the quick end of our POV experience with her. Like I said right at the top, she is completely unlike any other character we've been given access to. She controls more than almost anyone whose head we've been inside, and it's something we've been waiting for for so, so long. She's the ultimate mystery, perhaps the ultimate power, and we weren't disappointed by the wait. We actually got to see some of the behind the curtain, behind the trick stuff, the actual magic. And we got these big hints to her actual personality, even if it's not something that really tells us a lot, but it's still a hell of a lot more than we had before. And she's humanised somewhat in this chapter, which is very, very important, because obviously we've only ever seen the public face. Now we have backstory, we have the ability to be wrong about visions and how important that's going to be, and there's conversations to be had on philosophy, on power and presentation, the inner politics of it all, she's explored that as well. She is one of the thousand behind-the-throne characters that George loves so much. She will decide the fate of continents, so we have this grand overall plan for saving the world, as well as the smaller, immediate plan of winning Jon Snow. 
And honestly, I don't know whether to be excited for that or not. I like Melisandre as a character. She's very, very interesting. And together, her and Jon could probably do some really big things together, but is it the right things they're going to do? Or is this about to go down a bad moral path to get an end result? Is that what the world and Jon needs, though? It does play into my fear of Dark Starks. Is it all going to end up wrong? Will she end up at odds against Blood Raven and Bran? There's a thousand questions and one, but it's definitely great to have her as a POV. Certainly, it's one I've wanted for an age, and here's to at least a few more in wins. And again, I could go on it for ages and ages, but I'll leave it there for Minasandro because, well, that's a pretty long time I've just been talking about her. Because that is only one half our Northern Sandwich, we still have a second part to go. So let's get to that now. And if the first half, Minasandra was the cool, eerie kind of creepy and dark, well, the second half, unfortunately, is the uncool version. The one we really don't want to see, but we have to wade through anyway. As we go to the other side of the kingdom, down to the southwest, in Theon slash Reek 3. There's only so much you can really say to introduce this chapter. If we sometimes accuse Asher of being Stannis Cam, then Theon is absolutely Bolton Cam in this chapter. This chapter basically amounts to At Home with the Boltons. It's our best ever look at not just both individuals, but Ramsay and Roos together and their whole relationship. And, uh, well, as you'd expect, it's not great fun. It's pretty damn dark on both accounts. Theon is stuck in the middle, very long passages where he's barely even talking or present really, we're just really listening to them a lot, and yeah, they both suck. <laughs> I think we knew that going in, we'll definitely know it coming out. As they react to the latest goings on in the north, they make some more preparations for later, and again, Theon is just caught in the middle, and unfortunately we find that any hopes we did have from Theon 2 of him making great strides forward are maybe a bit preemptive and hopeful. Unfortunately, no path is so clear for Theon. Let's get going. We're in a brand new setting, but we're not to know that right from the beginning. We do know that the Bolton army won't have stayed at Moat Caelan after coming through though, so we can either figure that they are somewhere new or they've gone back to the Dreadfort, but given that we know they're supposed to be heading to Winterfell, we can guess that's not the case. That wouldn't make much sense, would it? Either way, Reek slash Theon is still a man in bondage, even after the successes of his second chapter. True, he has been moved up from the dungeons to serve at Ramsay's side, like promised, but he is still chained, this time between his ankles. Seeing that with so many characters, aren't we? He is still viewed as low as an animal. He's still very much treated like a dog, as the first page will tell us. The dogs, they come to him because of his scent, he still sleeps with them, he even has to eat with them. Almost as if Ramsay is making sure that Theon's little promotion slash dress-up session at Moat Kaelin doesn't give him any ideas about actually being human again. He's still an animal, he's still owned. And the opening scene is the dogs running in because they've been on a hunt with Ramsay, who is laughing. Theon thinks this could either be very good or very bad, which in some ways is more terrifying than knowing one way or the other. Never knowing how someone is going to react, which emotional peak they might reach, is incredibly stressful when you will be the one who suffers if it's bad. How are you supposed to dance around somewhere like that and protect yourself? Again, it's the whole eggshell game. The lower than a dog theme continues as Theon basically gets bullied by a few of them, but that's far from his main concern as he confirms this hunt has definitely been a failure. That's very bad news because Ramsay is so maniacal, he'll want to take out his rage on someone. And that means pain, and lots of pain, and it probably means that it's directed at Theon as a target. And on top of that, there's this extra worry because poor Ramsay has had to restrain his homicidal tendencies now that he's around half-decent folk, as we learn that we're actually in Barrington, down in the southwest of the north. So we know the greater alliance of Bolton forces is here, and Ramsay therefore has to at least play nice. But he's so childish in his emotions, that means he has to even out the balance in private, apparently. Here's your first quote. With them, he was always courteous and smiling. What he was behind closed doors was something else. 
And that's the third of three lines in one page detailing Ramsay as unpredictable and evil, which isn't something we need reminding about, really, but it is an obvious focus here in Theon 3. Which is a fair point, because he'll take a larger spotlight on the story from here on out, we're going to be around him that much more. But I also think it's to show that Theon's situation hasn't really improved at all. He's out of the dungeons and into the sunlight, sure, but that means he's also closer to Ramsay, who requires a punching bag more than ever. So it's some superb tension slash creepiness setting from George overall. Plus our interests are raised because we figure we're going to see this Bolton alliance up close for the first time. We've never had any particular interaction with the Dustins or the Riswells, so we figure we're going to meet some new characters and see why they've chosen to team up with the evil guys, whether it's intimidation, ambition, or what else it could be. That would be interesting enough, but because this chapter is placed after Davos 4, it also means we can play the suspicion game and wonder if anyone else is here wearing a full smile as Wyman Manderley will be later. Before we get to that though, we have more Ramsay, all dressed up and armed to the teeth, who decides some good public humiliation will satisfy his cravings for now. First, there's the comment on Fionn's stench, which, as we discussed in Fionn 2, is a major part of the degradation, the removal from society, and the lowering of self-esteem. But then we have the physical focus of Fionn not being able to catch, thanks to his Ramsay-given injuries and chains. So he gets a crowd of people laughing at him for not being able to catch, and looking pathetic as he tries to pick up a rotting head. Because that's the thing, we've all seen this, is a classic bullying tactic. Even if Fionn had caught the head, they'd meet stood there holding a rotting head, and they would just be laughing about that instead. They just want to laugh and bully, it doesn't really matter what it's about. From there, the assembled bullies continue to remind Fionn he's lower than them by demanding he take the horses. He, who was once a noble ward and the prince of a great house. It's likely incredibly good fun for little Walder, who actually wasn't around to see him as that proud lord, and is only a child himself, so yeah, great fun. But it also means we get our first hint of a bit of division between the two Frey boys. They've finally started to diverge their paths just a little bit. Little Walder is apparently fond of Ramsay and his games, which makes sense for a cruel Frey, while Big Walder is too interested in his own little schemes and remains separate. Not for the last time, we're reminded that Big Walder is, uh, he's quite the child. It's important to set up anyway for what many of us figure will happen later in Winterfell when Little Walder is found dead. For now, Fionn does take the horses off into the stables and Big Walder follows. Apparently the smaller Frey is so against becoming part of the gang, he'll even talk to Stinky Reek. That must mean the absolute world to Fionn just to have someone talk to him as an actual human. He still needs to be careful though, he's still lower than anyone else, and if he acts equal to Big Walder in any way, the boy will be offended and will then abandon him. So it's still an important connection for Fionn. This is how we learn that the head thrown at Fionn was nothing more than an old man who had some goats minding his own business. The reason he was brutally killed? Calling Ramsay Snow instead of Bolton. Which is weird because he's been Snow all of his life and I doubt they're sending out emails with updated contact information so kind of unfair. That and that alone got him killed though. So if we hadn't got the hint of this chapter that Ramsay is incredibly unhinged then we certainly do now. We likely want to move on from that mental image as quickly as possible, which George allows us to do as we're told of the actual reason for this hunt in the first place, what they were hunting, and why Ramsay is so pissed about not finding anything. They were looking for Big Rolder's cousins, which we presume to obviously mean they were looking for Freys. And for the briefest hint of a second, we might wonder why they would be looking for Freys until Big Rolder tells us everything we need to know. No, I never thought we would. They're dead. Lord Wyman had them killed. That's what I would have done if I was him. Ah, right. We see, so that's why George gave us Davos 4 before Fionn 3, as well as the obvious physical requirements of Wyman Manderley having to move from one point to another. He was being able to work out what Big Walder means here. We'll get more explicit confirmation in a minute, but we can already work out that the phrase being referred to are Simon, Jared, and Rhaegar, the smirking worm who dares to wear a dragon's name. 
Something has happened during the trip, and we can likely guess what, because Wyman heavily indicated as much, and now his questions about parting gifts to Davos make a lot more sense. So somewhere between White Harbour and here, the free phrase disappeared in the snowy north. Multiple hunts are being sent out to locate evidence, and I can find none. And this is where the incredibly intricate tiptoe dance of politics within the Bolton camp begins. And, well, it's not going to end in this book, it's going to keep going forever and ever. First, it's Wyman, not only claiming innocence, but going way over the top and saying how upset he is about the whole affair. He's overacting, to the point where he's almost daring his supposed allies to call him out on it, because he knows they can't without giving him reason to be offended, etc. The whole thing is a floor of eggshells again, like we said. And Wyman is going to keep up that overacting technique throughout, because he knows it bothers people. I like to think he even quite enjoys the fact that multiple hunts keep getting sent out as a waste of energy and time. Every little bit helps in this kind of war, doesn't it? And Reese likely suspects, or possibly even knows that these frays are already dead, but he has to save face and keep sending these hunts out, because to stop would give the impression that he believes them dead, and that can be taken as an accusation against Wyman. So again, the dance, the dance. And ironic among all this is that Big Walder just calls it out from the very beginning. Yeah, I bet Wyman killed them. He hated them. Why wouldn't he? <laughs> so in the mouth of babes, eh? He hits the nail on the head a lot faster than a lot of the grown-ups do, whilst also giving away a lot of his own personality for hidden secrets and killing people in the snow. Maybe this is where he gets the idea in the first place. Theon declines current on proceedings because there is always, always the risk of word getting back to Ramsay and that's just not worth it. Plus, we get another note on just how sadistic Ramsay is during his torture, so that's always fun, isn't it? This hunt obviously didn't find any phrase, not even any bodies, which is just as perplexing. Ramsay isn't just annoyed, he's hungry too, so he declares there'll be a feast despite the fact that winter is on the horizon and food is scarce. Lord Harwood Stout, having been around Ramsay for about five minutes, probably knows not to argue, but also knows this is almost as violent as a blade to the throat, as do his servants. Once winter comes and all this food has gone to feeding others, then it's them who have to pay with their lives. We know what terrible leadership this is, just take, 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 with zero care about the effect it will have on the people that the Boltons are supposed to be ruling. Normally, Ramsay is just terrible through violence, but now we find he's also an idiot leader as well. Bruce needs to have words, and we'll get to see those plenty later on. At the feast, Theon gets confirmation that he is indeed still a level below the dogs. They might both have to remain on the floor and get thrown scraps, but at least the dogs get to do it, running around freely, while Fionn gets chained to the door because society rejects him so much, in large part due to that smell. The feast is being heartily enjoyed by such maniacs as Ramsay, until the doors burst open and in comes Roos, who gives an immediate display of his power and presence by ordering all of the feasters out, and all of them immediately obeying. At first, Ramsay gives orders for Fionn to be taken as well, but Roos asks that he stays, so he instantly gets some interest into why that might be. For now though, Theon is ignored as Roos, in his calm and chilling way that seems more dangerous than a shout, asks after Ramsay's success in finding the phrase. And right from the off, the father is critical of the son's tactics, as he is in most things. This time it's the fact that Ramsay never even bothered to ask for hints from the locals, and doesn't seem to care overall anyway because he can't see why a few phrases would matter. Roos, who is one of the best plotters and schemers in the series, likely despairs at the lack of political mind that Ramsay actually possesses, and tries to give him time to reach the conclusion on his own maybe with a few hints. For example, Hostine and Aenys Frey are understandably pretty upset, so maybe it would be a good idea to keep them happy, seeing as we rely on their forces so much. Nope, that point goes over Ramsay's head as well. We're going to see a lot of that, but be prepared. So Roos switches to seeing if Ramsay can understand why they might have gone missing. Wyman was moving at a crawl. The three Freys were getting itchy and wanting to move. They ride on ahead into the snow and puff, they're gone. At least that's the story, but it does seem like a Wyman tactic. Yet again though, pretty much bypasses Ramsay. However, he does have the sense to ask if Roos believes Wyman's version of events, to which Roos dons his best political face and merely answers, did I give that impression? 
which obviously indicates that he does not believe Wyman, but they won't come out and say it at this point in time, because right now it's irrelevant anyway. It's all about public persona versus private. Wyman is publicly upset, Roos must be publicly seen to believe him. Much, much later, Roos will truly come to realise how fragile his alliance is. It's a very enjoyable passage, but even here, at this early juncture, he knows how much work it will take to keep people together from the off. Next, we get the note of how much food Wyman has bought with him, and this is important for three points. First, the most basic. This food is really, really going to be needed when they come to Winterfell and the storms settle in. It's going to be a major factor in their survival, which links strongly into the second point. This is a form of armour for Wyman. He boosts his own importance massively by being the one with the most food. It's that much harder to accuse him or piss him off because if he goes, so does the food, and then they're screwed. And finally, it's a nice cover for his not bringing hostages with him. We've just met his family, we've just heard his speech about keeping them safe down at their home, there was no chance that he was bringing any Mandalays with him now, especially when this whole plan of his is largely based on the idea that they were be coming back. I won't focus on that too much here, I've had to discuss it in other places before, but this is basically a larger version of the northern tradition of going for a hunt. It's a form of self-sacrifice. Wyman knows he's unlikely to come back if things go a certain way and his betrayal comes out, and that's fine by him, but he's not risking any of his family, so the food covers that a bit. Wyman is left behind as a subject for now, as Roos doesn't quite criticise Ramsay's throwing of a lavish feast for no reason, but he suggests the criticism just enough to annoy Ramsay, who's very much the toddler throwing his toys at the pram here. He wants recognition, he wants respect, as he once did with his surname, and he wants it in Barrow Hall, which is the main castle down in Barrowton. So again, Roos has to explain what so clearly escapes Ramsay. Power does not mean getting to do whatever you want and demanding anything and everything from people. That's the Joffrey way of thinking, we've compared those two before. Power means having to be smart enough to keep that power. For instance, Roos again being aware that he needs to keep his big supporters happy, to a degree anyway, to keep this alliance and their claims solid. Lady Dustin is one of the biggest parts of this support, so he will not go around making demands in her own home, etc, etc, because that will probably lose him support. It's really a pretty simple concept, and it's yet another one flying over Ramsay's head. It's really not his day so far, is it? When told that Lady Dustin does not like him, Ramsay flies off the handle, promising extreme violence and revenge. Will she abide me if I strip off her skin to make myself a pair of boots? Unlikely. And those boots would come dear. They will cost us Barrowton, House Dust and the Riswells. Classic Roos, really, it's the, the dryness of it all, the larger point behind calm words. Again, he tries to explain very slowly to his dim-witted son that actions have consequences, Ramsay. Again, it's pretty basic. If you are mean to people, they will not like you. If they don't like you, they are less likely to support you, and we need their support. As he explains how pissing off Barbara Dustin also loses them the Riswells and exactly why she's not fond of Ramsay, we also learn that she's on this side because she hates Ned Stark. Which is a surprise for us. Of all our expected reasons for lords and ladies to join the Bolton side, this isn't one of them. And it's a damn rare opinion to find above the neck, so that's definitely something else that we want to hear about later. But yet again, Ramsay misses the point and just gets pissed off about perceived personal slights, and his reaction is the same as always. Answer everything with extreme violence. At which point, Roos tires of being obviously subtle and goes for something a bit more direct. There are times you make me wonder if you are truly my seed. My forebears were many things but never fools. No, be quiet now, I've heard enough. Finally, someone gets to tell Ramsay to his face what an idiot he is, before going on to explain yet again what the actual situation is. Their strength is mostly based on appearance. They derive it from their allies, not their actual selves. Enemies of their camp see the Freys, half of the North, and even the Lannisters in the background. It's those perceived numbers that protect them and very little else. And the most important factor is that that support from the Northern Houses is not genuine. They are there, mostly, because they have to be. But given the slightest reason to go the other way, 
Well, the whole thing is a house of cards. Can you not see that, dear idiot son of mine? Can you not see how constantly close to the edge we are, and how we must do what we can to dig our heels in, perhaps by not being overtly violent to those to which we owe our strength? Unfortunately, no, Ramsay cannot see, not even when Roos brings up the ultimate example of one of the Stark boys turning up. His point is obviously that if this were ever going to happen, everything would disappear in an instant, which makes for good chapter sequencing given that we know the possibility of this happening thanks to Davos's last chapter. And Ramsay still waves it away as if nothing matters, even including that slip of the tongue that he'd kill them again, when obviously the public tale is that Fionn killed them in the first place. So again, Ramsay looks like an utter moron. He can't see the significance of anything, he can't even keep his story straight. Roos has to outline to him how disastrous it would be if the truth about Winterfell's burning were known, as we again discussed with Davos, and he manages to back it up with another classic quote on how human skin is not as good as cowhide for boots. Ugh, this guy, man. As much as we're having Ramsay's stupidity and inability to rule shoved in our face here, we're also being shown how strong Roos's political mind is, how he thinks on the details and on the consequences, but just to keep us grounded, George throws in this little line about the boots just to remind us what a damn freak the guy is as well. Assumedly, he knows this about human skin as a fashion choice from personal experience and just drops it into normal conversation as if it's an everyday subject. We're reminded that he might be smart, but he's also completely callous, devoid of any affection for human life and incredibly dangerous not to mention downright evil. The teaching moment continues, again with Roos's patience over being subtle having worn thin. This time it turns to Ramsay's exploits in general. Tales are told of you, Ramsay. I hear them everywhere. People fear you. Good. You are mistaken. It is not good. No tales were ever told of me. Do you think I would be sitting here if it were otherwise? Your amusements are your own. I will not chide you on that count. But you must be more discreet. A peaceful land. A quiet people. That has always been my rule. Make it yours. This is another really important passage. The first part is something we've said all along. Ramsay can never hope to rule with all his evils. Being intimidating like a Tywin Lannister is one thing. That keeps people in line. But the downright monstrous evils of Ramsay, the fact that it's all portrayed as a game, make sure that he will never ever be accepted. Maybe at first, maybe one by one, but he would eventually be brought down by the masses in one way or another, so this is good advice. But then things get a bit creepier. First is Roos saying no tales were ever told of me. That suggests there is something to tell. We already know that Roos is a super bad guy, and we're going to learn more on that in a minute, but it's got you wondering what other supreme crimes the guy's got up to but managed to cover up. Given all the weird things we already know, we definitely don't want to imagine what we don't. And on top of that is the fact he's got no problem with Ramsay actually doing these things. The flaying, the mental torture, his sadistic hunts. He doesn't actually mind his son doing these things, just that people might find out about them. So that's pretty terrifying, isn't it? He sees them all as amusements. So again, the complete disregard for human life and suffering, the absolute lack of empathy with another being. It is chilling. That peaceful land, quiet people rule is actually pretty scary. These two are literal inhuman monsters, one is just a lot smarter than the other. As Barbary Dustin will tell us later on, it's just a game to Roos. And finally, there's the advice that you can do what you want, so long as you maintain that peace. So he's actually just giving Ramsay on how to keep up with his evils, while still ruling the land. Ramsay, ever the petulant teen, simply throws back that he doesn't need a lectured dad, to which Roos says, actually you do, because there's big news about Stannis and things are progressing as they have heard that he's left the wall. That got Ramsay halfway to his feet a smile glistening on his wide, wet lips. Is he marching on the Dreadfort? Ramsay is again presented as the monster hungry for blood and battle, but we're also reminded that Stannis was originally supposed to be marching on the Dreadfort so they could spring their trap, as we're also told more about how Arnolf Karlstark did his best to betray Stannis. They can't work out why Stannis would have changed course, because they obviously don't know the brilliance that is Jon Snow. 
Ramsay's first instinct is to blame Arnolf and punish him, so Roos has to again look into motivation and state that it's unlikely the Karstarks have forgotten what Rob did to their patriarch. But the larger point is not only has Stannis won Deepwood Mott and restored House Glover, the worst part is that their mountain clans have joined him. His strength has vastly increased. Ramsay is still confident that theirs is larger, but Roos has to point out that not everything is constant, and you must understand how so much of our own numbers are looking for any excuse to get away. So Ramsay has another suggestion. It's the same one he always suggests. Violence. He'll ride out and defeat Stannis at Deepwood. So easy, so straightforward to him. Bloody idiot. Roos denies him that. After the wedding, fine. But if you were to ride off now, before you are married and get yourself killed, the whole deal is off and the big anchor that will plant us in the north will be gone. Our position forever untenable. And the wedding is what matters most. But weddings seem so boring to little boys, which is basically what Ramsay is, when compared to big glorious battles with lots of blood. So if I need a wedding first, let's just do it now. But Roos says no, you are missing half the point of doing this in the first place. It has to be a show. A show of strength and unity, and another persuasion not to abandon us, given that we already supply too many reasons. If you wed her at Winterfell, her home, it gives us a valid reason to make the centre of the North our base, instead of just moving in on the house of the people we killed. It makes it that much easier to accept us as rulers because the North has always been ruled on Winterfell, and the marriage is seen as more legitimate because we brought it out into the open instead of doing a rush job somewhere, and the whole affair will just have that much more gravitas. Even with Ramsay making yet another slip of the tongue about who destroyed Winterfell in the first place, Roos has a real Peter Valish vibe in terms of keeping a secret going even when in private, Roos has more logistical reasons also. This is how they will progress the war and force Stannis' hand. Stay here at Barrowton, and Stannis can likewise hunker down in Deepwood. Before you know it, winter has set in, and the whole war is effectively frozen for who knows how long, years and years. But go to Winterfell, and it's a political move that can't be ignored. Deepwood, Mott and Barrowton are close enough on the power scale as to make no matter. You can wait out winter in a tie, but if one of you has Winterfell throughout winter, you will be most definitely seen as winning, with whoever is left outside being a distant second. Besides, even in a military sense, if Stannis does leave Roos to have months or years to truly restore Winterfell and harness its defences, then Stannis will simply never take it. On top of that, there is the Aya problem. Roos is savvy enough to have determined that a large percentage of why the northern clans would follow Stannis in the first place is a rescue mission to save precious Aya from terrible Ramsay. If they are left unmolested in Winterfell, obviously Aya, quote-unquote, would be subject to Ramsay forever, so Stannis either has to march or risk losing half his forces, and that's the same as a loss anyway. So why the focus on making Stannis march to them? If this were down south, some singer might paint the situation as the person who marches being the aggressor, the brave one, and the one seen to be winning, while others cower behind their walls. And this might often be the case in the north too, but not with winter on the horizon. Being in a strong castle and making someone come to you across a land soon to be frozen is easy enough to paint them as desperate and you as smart. Plus there is a very different thing between a march and a forced march, which this would obviously be. And we'll see the truth of this all once we return to Ash's POV in about 10 chapters time. Finally, there's the kicker. A forced march against an entrenched enemy means that Stannis knows he'll be against the odds. Therefore, he'll need every number available to him. He'll call in Arnoff Colstark, obviously secretly on Team Bolton, and that should be the end of Stannis. So case closed. Not even Ramsay's stupidity can argue with the reasoning, though that doesn't mean he won't find something to argue about. This time, it's the difference between inviting Bannermen and commanding them. An invitation will accomplish the same thing. Power tastes best when sweetened by courtesy. You'd best learn that if you ever hope to rule. It's pretty interesting to get this deep dive on Roos's approach to rule. It's almost a path of least resistance taken, or basically why make it harder on yourself. You'll end with the same result and now have less reason to complain or deny you. It's the whole peaceful land, quiet people idea again. I wonder if he'd have the same approach if he believed his power absolute, but I get the feeling that Roos is too smart to ever think such a thing possible. So after yet another dressing down, 
Ramsey throws more toys out of the pram when Roos announces he is taking Fionn. And note, this is right after him just pointing out that you can ask for something if you want, but he doesn't with Ramsey. With Ramsey, he still commands. So Ramsey gets shirty. He's just been told over and over that he's wrong. He's an idiot, and we're not doing things his way. Now his favourite toy is also being taken. So he proves to us he hasn't taken a single word in by stating that Roos can't have him. And Roos is not a man to joke or relate to Hume in any way really, and yet he finds this amusing. This whelp of a boy believing he has any say in the matter. All he has, or has ever had, derives from Roos. This is not a request. And for a moment, Fionn sees the monster. The twisting of the mouth, the spittle on his lips, and he believes there's a moment where Ramsay might strike down his father. Consider, he just called him bastard, which he hates. He's reminded him he was born of rape, which he hates. And he had the insult of command instead of request as well. On top of everything else he's just had to hear. There is genuine hatred there, growing and growing. We know Ramsay has ambition, cares for absolutely no one, and loves to kill. The moment passes, but the tone is set, and perhaps Roos doesn't take it quite seriously enough. This absolutely looks like it could be foreshadowing for the future, Roos eventually being killed by Ramsay's evil. We leave Dance with Ramsay riding out with Winterfell, but I could easily foresee him returning and killing Roos, even if Winterfell is in chaos and the whole plan is gone out the window. In fact, maybe, especially then. So Ramsay accepts for now and goes to release Fionn, but not before getting an extra dig of cruelty in. Perhaps he can't beat Roos now, but he can get his power fixed with Fionn. He promises Fionn he will get him back at some point, and when he does, he's taking a finger as punishment, which is obviously entirely unfair and sends Fionn into a frenzy. He didn't ask to be taken, he's done nothing wrong, he's 110% loyal to Ramsay, and yet this is going to happen, likely because Ramsay wants to live in Fionn's mind even more than usual while they're apart, so Fionn is forever dreading his eventual return. Even if Fionn never comes back, you get the sense that Ramsay likes this extra little bit of pain he can eke out of his prisoner. Plus, there's the dig about his scent again. So it happens that Fionn, who you could have easily forgotten was in this chapter for a while there, is riding the short journey to Barrow Hall beside Roos underneath a silver moon. Can't get much more creepy than that. But look, there's still Shanks Walton, so that's nice, isn't it? At the beginning of the journey, Roos cleverly gets Fionn inside somewhat by asking a question that Fionn hasn't been asked for the longest time. What would he like to be called? With Ramsay's threat still fresh in his mind and his persona still owned by the younger Bolton, Fionn still insists on Reek, but still, the gesture is there. On top of that, there's the advice of how to hide his accent with the difference in how to pronounce my lord, a famous scene that was given over to Tywin in the show. Roos really doesn't fail to surprise us with his eye for detail. He's a very, very intelligent man. Imagine what use he could have been to the world if he'd been born of a soul. Alas, alarms for that idea, unfortunately. As useful as the advice might be, it does also give the impression that Roos is looking upon Fionn as a tool, something to be manipulated, and we very much know that's the truth. Yet what we get from him next seems to go against that. He adds fluff. He talks as if to a friend or an equal. It's easily in the most words we've ever heard out of his mouth at once. First is his declaring that Fionn's smell is Ramsay's fault, not Fionn's, which is obviously another incredibly meaningful sentence to someone like Fionn and goes some way to getting him on side. It's the conversation on smell that has Roos reminiscing about the original Reek, the one who eventually became young Ramsay's man. You remember all the confusion we had back over the issue back in Clash when the use of fake and borrowed names really complicated the matter. Now we're getting real insight into the tale of how Ramsay and Reek ended up together, as Roos, who definitely doesn't seem like he often wistfully reminisces over things, tells the tale of how original Reek seemed to always stink despite all best efforts to the contrary, and how this is attributed to a curse, or a soul rotting, or something just being wrong with him. So this ties in very neatly with what we said in earlier Fionn chapters about how something as simple as hygiene can result in being ostracised from the society, or used to make you out as worth less than everyone. Hence how Reek ended up sleeping with the pigs like the current one does with the dogs. We get a mention that the maester boy was some form of illness, which is probably true in reality, but that would matter little at the dreadfort. Note that there is no comment on original Reek's abilities or intellect or even his nature. We're told he was healthy 
and strong otherwise. He could be made of use in some way for sure. But instead, purely down to the stink and people's attitudes towards him, Roos gave him away at the earliest opportunity to Ramsay's mother. And he did it as a joke, an insult. Reek was to be inflicted upon her and young Ramsay. He and Ramsay became inseparable. I do wonder though, was it Ramsay who corrupted Reek? Or Reek Ramsay? It's an interesting little passage that has no real bearing on the plot of the chapter, but it is an interesting study into people's prejudices and where they think evil comes from, and Roos's own bias as well. He wonders which of the boys corrupted the other. Well, there's a possibility, they were both as bad as each other, and you have to think that Reek was pretty bitter about how his life had turned out through no fault of his own, indeed despite his own best efforts, but I think this is Roos trying to convince himself that Ramsay wasn't corrupted from the start, that there might have been something salvaging within him. To me, it's obvious Ramsay was the worst of the two. It's already mentioned he was growing up wild and unruly, and his evil just seems so natural within him, so I think this is more Roos hoodwinking himself into a comfortable thought more than anything else. Still, he quickly turns back to the present, with those bright eyes that Fionn focuses on multiple times throughout the chapter, and asks what Ramsay whispered to him a second ago. This is the ultimate bad news for Fionn. He either has to lie to this very scary lord in front of him, or betray Ramsay's order. He even makes it seem like he'll end in painful punishment, and we see that the mental blocks placed on him during torture are so strong he nearly chokes rather than pick either option. Luckily, Roos shows a, a kindness, it feels odd to ever use that word in conjunction to this man, and tells Fionn to relax. He already knows what Ramsay said. So we're again shown that Roos has Ramsay absolutely wrapped around his little finger, so easily that it's almost amusing again, and even has Ramsay's closest friends as his own spies. He seems to be saying that he can't really believe how stupid and baselessly confident Ramsay is, about his secrets, about his men, and about his ambition to rule the North, which Roos also completed to Christ, despite the fact he's obviously given that impression to Ramsay so far. So we've got intrigue on top of intrigue, plots within plots. But before we even get to the reasons why Roos doesn't want him ruling, we have the story of how Ramsay came to be in the first place, and I'll be straight up, it is not an easy passage to read at all, and that's of us even knowing the basics beforehand. So far in this chapter, Roos has been painted as incredibly smart politically, in terms of warfare, in terms of Ramsay, and he's been taking Ramsay down a few pegs, which we obviously like to see. And while I don't think any of us are forgetting that he's the antagonist that was the driving force behind the Red Wedding and the end of the Starks, this passage still serves to remind us that we are dealing with a man of absolute deplorable evil, one of the very worst people we'll ever meet across the series. Just because Ramsay's evil is wild and in the form of games, doesn't make it any lesser than Roos's organised, methodical evil. They're both as bad as each other. The sad tale begins with Roos, by chance coming across a woman whom he instantly desires as much as because he thinks he has the right to claim her as anything else, she being a new bride. It's a sense of ownership as much as it is desire, and even in that vein he describes her as healthy looking, rather than beautiful or anything of that nature. The description is uber creepy and shows his disconnect with other people, as well as playing into the weird monster vibe that we get from him. He then goes on to defend what is obviously a horrific practice in the right to the first night, a law abolished by King Jaehaerys and by the Starks as well, yet apparently kept up by the Boltons, so we definitely have the evil vibe going as well. Roos claims that the Umbers do it too, as if that makes it okay, and he even gets a Skagos mentioned in, which is all the more exciting for us now after Davos 4, especially the note of Heart Trees, as that has us thinking that Bran might be able to see Rickon, or maybe even Davos later on, although we must hope he doesn't turn Weirwood TV on just in time to see Davos, maybe take Rickon by force, and therefore mark Davos as an enemy. No thank you. But anyway, back to the horrible story. Roos believes that he was well within his right to have the husband hanged, but then to also rape his bride beneath his still swaying body, which is tough to beat as a truly sickening image, isn't it? And then, as if to really set in stone how awful this guy is, he says that it was hardly worth it, and equates the whole thing to the same as not finding a fox on a hunt and losing his favourite horse. He genuinely thinks these things are on par with rape and murder. I think that says it all. Thus, Ramsay was born from this most evil of acts, and Roos didn't even know until a year later. 
at which point he showed he was equally comfortable with killing a baby, but didn't merely because of the famous eyes. So he set the woman and Ramsay up with the mill, and made sure that no one could go and inform the Starks. It's the old peaceful land, quiet people trick again. But this just exposes what we said earlier. It means peaceful for him. It doesn't mean that his people don't suffer, just that he makes sure they do it quietly. The rule protects him, not the welfare of those he's supposed to look after. And apparently, the mother went out of her way to make sure Ramsay thought he was due a better life. Perhaps because she genuinely thought there was a chance he might. Perhaps because she felt she was owed for all she'd been put through. Who knows? The point is that even now, Roos strongly disagrees. Even in a matter such as Ramsay's strength, it's painted more as ferociousness more than skill. And while I'd like to think we might see that as Ramsay's downfall once he enters a true battle and comes against a proper fighter, it seems it's just as likely to spell Roos's end for being overconfident on this point. Somehow, we wind back up commenting on the structure of the Bolton Alliance and how Roos is smart enough to suspect almost all of them. The Serwins and the Tallhearts are not to be relied on. My fat friend Lord Wyman plots betrayal. And Horsbane, the Umbers may seem simple, but they are not without a certain low cunning. He knows the situation, he's not blinded by hubris or hope, he's a realistic guy. Unfortunately, he's also aware that Ramsay is the complete opposite, and knows that in order for Fionn to warn him about such, is only half-hearted and would definitely just resort in torture for Fionn. He thinks a good leeching is in order, and to be honest, I'm surprised that he's waited this long to bring it up. We know how much stock he puts in leeching and blood purity, even if he also worries that Ramsay is too corrupted even for his favourite ceremony. We're then treated to some information on, D on Dalmeric, Roos's actual heir and someone he was actually fond of, or maybe proud of at least. Anyway, he sounds like quite the kid, very talented and actually way older than I originally thought if he was of an age of Lyanna, who I bet was actually better with horses. We're not told Dalmeric's actual nature, and let's remember who he had for a father, but I think we all agree he'd be a massive improvement over Ramsay, and it seems like House Bottom's loss is also the world's that it was taken away, and taken away by Ramsay. Roos seems to hold no doubt about that. Domeric sought out his bastard half-brother and paid the price for it with poison, which left Roos with the quandary of what to do with a son now cursed by being a kinslayer. He couldn't kill him without also being cursed, there's a little bit of the Vectarian vibe in here. But then it seems like he didn't want to, because otherwise he'd have no sons at all. And again, we're reminded of his absolute detachment and evil when Fionn suggests that Lady Walder could produce new sons, and Roos is not only confident that Ramsay will kill them, but supports the idea. He is absolutely fine with his own children being murdered because it's probably the best for the house, he says, and he's all in on Ramsay now. The guy is a maniac, plain and simple. And a smaller note to suggest that is his description of sex with Walder and is labelling her sexual pleasure as endearing. <laughs> yeah, uber creepy again, endearing. It's as if a woman enjoying sex has never occurred to him before, which, in fairness, is likely a common problem in this society, but he really takes it to a new level. So all of this creeps Fionn the fuck out. The fob-off of child murder, the fact he's happy for Ramsay to come after him, even if he thinks he doesn't deserve it, just the overall eeriness of it all. So he straight up asks, why am I here having to listen to all this stuff, especially when he believes himself so useless and filthy? Roos says, well that's easy enough, just hop in a bath and get changed. But now we get exposed to even more of Ramsay's mental blocks, as we see how this idea absolutely terrifies Fionn. He cannot let go of his clothes, rags really, because Ramsay told him to keep them. He cannot have a bath because people might see what has become of his body, or even he might see what has become of his body, and the trauma of such is just too much to bear. Even all those nice options that Roos is offering freaks him out, he just can't get out of this mental box that Ramsay has built. He really did a number on him. Fionn is getting incredibly distressed at the idea, and we really see that his last chapter, playing the princeling, didn't do so much for him as we had might hoped. And linked back to that previous chapter only increases when Roos tells him that all of this, all of this entire campaign and their current war, was only possible because of Fionn's betrayal of Rob Stark and his taking of Winterfell. Roos would have still nursed treachery in his heart and maybe even still tried something, but all this evil out in the world, it's Fionn's fault which is exactly why the issue hit him so hard in Fionn 2. 
We end the chapter by finally coming to Barrow Hall, and within we have our first meeting with another very important dance character, someone who have a lot of influence in later film chapters and the general war for the North, maybe even the Pink Letter, some say. We'll save a deeper look at Barbara Dustin for further chapters, but for now she's here, opening up a whole new side to Northern politics, and in absolute disbelief that the creature known as Reek is actually Theon Greyjoy. Roose again shows how little he cares for human experience as it becomes clear that he and Barbary just want to use Fionn in some way. Everyone is a tool, remember. It doesn't matter if he's had body parts removed, that he might be mad, he'll still serve a purpose and who cares what he thinks about it. For now, we're left to wonder what such a purpose could possibly be, but then we've just seen Ramsay use the Fionn persona, so why not Roose and Barbary as well? We don't get any answers right now, it's a mystery for another day, but we're distracted anyway as this all becomes far too much for Fionn. The idea of being forced back into that guilt-ridden persona of being put on display, or maybe having to be used against Ramsay, his mind can no longer take the idea of such, and he ends up pitifully breaking down in tears. I'm not him. I'm not the turncloak. He died at Winterfell. My name is Reek. He had to remember his name. It rhymes with freak. The persona Ramsay has imprinted on him is just too strong. To be brought off it is going to be a true struggle, not dissimilar to getting away from alcohol or drugs. He's addicted to this role as Reek, because everything else only represents pain thanks to Ramsay. You would think it has been made clear enough to us over the first two chapters, but I think here is where we really get to see the true extent of the trauma, even though this is actually the first step to getting rid of it. After all, this is the last chapter to be labelled as Reek. And as chapters go, like I said at the beginning, it's a pretty dark one. That'll happen when Roos and Ramsay are two of the main characters. And that sets the tone for the rest of Fionn's arc, which will be exclusively at Winterfell from now on. This is our first big introduction to Team Bolton, how fragile it is, how everyone is out for everyone else in this matchstick alliance. We're reminded of the two different evils of father and son and how Fionn's caught in the middle. And we also finally get on the road to... Well, not quite recovery, but at least rediscovery and payment is probably the best way to put it. That's what we can await at Winterfell. Yeah, pretty dark chapter. I'm glad we're past it. Let's move on to our last of the day. And you know what? We've had our beginning chapter, our first part of the sandwich, the associated bread. Now we've had two layers of Westerosi meat or filling. Well, at the moment, it's open-faced. We need to finish this off with another slice of associated bread. Let's head back over now to Essos. Actually, we're not even heading to land. We're heading to sea as we go to... Tyrion 8. Like I say, we're back on a ship chapter, and you might remember back in Feast, I had a little bit of a moment where I spoke about how the frequency of ship chapters really ticks up in the latter two books of the series. First three books, not really a lot. We get a Davos, about half a Theon, half a Sansa at one point. I think there is one Daenerys uh, in Storm, but not really... We're not really present on the ships. But second half, or the middle part of the series, I suppose, that ticks up a lot more. And when we get Sam, when we get Victorian and Feast, and now it's coming into dance as well, because we'll have these Tyrion chapters, Victorian's coming back soon, and we all figure ships are going to be fairly important going forward in the general formation of things. So this is opening a nice little part of the overall series structure as well. But as for this chapter specifically, out on the sea, out on the waves of Tyrion, the second ship of the of the book, but obviously this one is a little bit different. And well, what are we getting here? Because plot-wise, do we advance much in this Tyrion chapter? We've kind of hit the lull in plot advancements a little bit. We'll get more in Tyrion 9, but I can certainly see where interest does dip a bit in the middle 
part of Tyrion's arc does for me anyway but that doesn't mean we don't get some good stuff in here because mainly what this is is the penny chapter which makes it very very valuable and last week i promised you we didn't have quite enough time to get to penny because she only kind of appears right at the end and that's a long old chapter so that's going to be what we will focus on today because penny is incredibly important in dance in the Tyrion especially and what their relationship forms into and this is where that starts so that's going to be the basis of the conversation there's also some Makoro chat in there a little bit of Jorah, not too much, thankfully. And basically, this is just kind of a rest chapter in Tyrion's very, very busy arc. So, well, let's dive right in. So, R'hllor is really getting its day here in part nine of Dance, isn't it? Not only did we have Melisandre earlier on today, but Tyrion begins his own chapter yet again with another Nightfire, this time led by new character Makoro, the chosen man of Benero, as you might remember from last week where he was mentioned, as all of those aboard the Selesi Quran pray to their fire god. And Tyrion watches from afar and we are immediately told right from the off that Penny, the girl who again in the last chapter we saw trying to kill Tyrion before breaking down into despair, is also on this ship that the Widow procured for Tyrion and Jorah. What possible reason she could have for being here as well we do not yet know. We were just left to wonder until later in the chapter because remember last time we saw her she was crying, absolutely distraught and just being taken off by the Widow to her rooms. So how she got onto this ship, that's left for us to find out. Instead, the first half of the first page is dedicated to the initial description of Makoro. That's who we're focusing on. This gigantic man with the booming voice who carries a huge staff adorned with a fire-breathing dragon's head. So you aren't missing him in a crowd probably. Unfortunately for him... We've already read Melisandre's chapter now, so we know that this green flame coming out from his staff is probably just some of this special powder that Melisandre showed us earlier, and he's as big on presentation as she is. But that's the wonderful thing about Melisandre's chapter, isn't it? We can only say probably. I still don't think any of us would be confident enough to outright declare what abilities Mokoro does or doesn't have. Not yet, anyway. We'll find out some for definite as we go when we meet him in later chapters. For now, who knows what he's capable of, especially as he draws ever nearer to Daenerys and the dragons. Does that change things like it has for Melisandre at the wall probably so Makoro only quickly mentioned before but now actually met here is an important fellow basically he's the number two representative for law from here on out behind Melisandre we don't see Benero again in this book at least and Thoros of Mir who we obviously aren't seeing in this book either was less than enthusiastic about that side of things so Makoro is going to be important going forward he also adorns slavers tattoos as Benero did which begs the question why doesn't Melisandre have any if she was a slave or at least tattoo scars like we saw on the widow is it perhaps we just can't see them they're on her arms under her robe or something or perhaps because she's glammed them up somehow interesting question anyway macaro that's what we're talking about now he's gonna have some major moments coming up he's going to add his own visions to melisandre's and given that he's an entirely different part of the world from her with a very different focus it'll be interesting to see what those visions show him and if there's any crossover we won't have to wait too long to find out he will quickly demonstrate he has his own powers and abilities to be wary of such as his managing to survive for 10 days simply clinging to wreckage as we're going to get to in Tyrion 9. We'll find out that he was prepared for that eventuality that ship broke thanks to the visions much later on which again makes him pretty important and to be honest that's where the character becomes truly interesting later in the book as he winds up on the ship of Victarion Greyjoy, works what seems to be very dark magic to heal the wound in Victarion's hand replacing it with something that would look more at home on the end of Ghost Rider's arm, to be honest, and then sacrifices Maester Kerwin to get some wins out of him, and then, perhaps most important of all, helps Victorian out with the dragon horn by informing him that it will require blood to bind it to him. So, clearly a pretty important guy with a further role to play. 
He already has his mission to reach Daenerys, that's important enough. He's going to bring her that word from Volantis and basically start off that whole new plot thread, we assume. Basically, he's the welcoming party to truly introduce her to the religion, convince her that they are correct about her being Azor High, that they're trustworthy and worth allying with before starting that whole legend off, basically, taking the first steps of getting Azor High westward towards destiny, assuming that's what they want to do. So jobs don't really come much bigger than that, he's definitely got a lot on his shoulders. But then again, he is also most definitely the Black Flame that Quaif warned us about, which I probably should have remembered when I was comparing Quaif with the Widow, so that's kind of gone out the window. So we have been warned about his coming to Marine. Is that because her overall interaction with the religion will be a negative, Daenerys I'm talking about, or because he himself represents danger? There's certainly questions surrounding him. He has an aura of darkness and potentially evil around him, same as Melisandre in many ways. And what about this connection he makes with Victarion? This is questionable. Why are you teaching Victarion how to use the Dragonhorn if you're on your way to support Daenerys? Why would you be helping someone control her dragons if you're on her side? Especially with a guy like Viterion who's pretty dangerous slash stupid. So is this the Red Priest trying to take the dragons out of her hands so she's more easily controlled perhaps? Is Makara going rogue? It's always a question with these Red Priests. It's all very mysterious and definitely bears thinking about going forward into the future. Jon is wrapped up in the potential darkness and so is Danny. and you'd imagine that at some point Makara might also reunite with Tyrion which would be probably pretty damn surprising to the latter. So all of these people are all getting mixed up. That's going to tie into revision in a second, keep that in mind. Basically, watch this space in terms of Makaro going into Winds and maybe Dream. We've spoken about the importance of the relationship between Danny and R'hllor loads already in previous chapters, so that's going to increase a lot in Winds when Makaro probably becomes a really critical component whenever Daenerys kind of returns to the game, so to speak. But back into Tyrion 8, into this chapter. Tyrion also takes note of the five fiery hands that Jorah introduced us to last time, and though they won't actually end up doing much, they do set some tension here at the beginning. Religious soldiers are always a concern, and Tyrion is wise enough to recognise that, especially in terms of keeping his mouth shut about his own views on the subject. If those are heard, the best he can hope for is to be put back in chains, the worst it doesn't bear thinking about. And speaking of chains, he has at least been spared that particular negative that he suffered through in Tyrion 7, though we can argue about how much relief that actually is, when the sea now acts as a chain of sorts, keeping you in one specific place and not giving you much option about it. This time, it's the Selassie Koran, and it's not a home that Tyrion is fond of. Giving back his old shy maid, that was much more fun than this large, ugly, fat little ship. A tub, Tyrion calls it, with a captain, crew, and slaves that Tyrion is all equally ill-disposed to. So we have some tension there as well. If something goes wrong on this trip, as Makaro knows it will, will this all come to a head? Well, the chances are increased when Tyrion notes how the majority of the crew are also worshippers, and it's Makaro that's really in charge, not the captain. So if it ever does come up that Tyrion offends or challenges them, or they decide they need a sacrifice, or whatever it may be, the numbers are definitely not on Tyrion's side. So we've got that set up for our chapter going forward. It's while watching the nightly rituals that Tyrion spots Penny, watching from the shadows with her precious dog and decides to approach her. So now that we're finally here, meeting Penny really for the first time, now we'll take a moment to really talk about this new character entering our story. Penny, 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 where to start with Penny? Her miserable circumstances, the further horror that she's currently sailing into, her tough times with Tyrion. Well, sure, we could talk about any of them, but I think what we really need to do first is focus on why she's included in this book in the first place. Why is it her specifically? Because I don't think anyone would have guessed she or anyone like her would become Tyrion's companion during Dance. It's kind of an unforeseen storyline. We often speak of how many segments you can divide Tyrion's journey into, but in a more overall sense, we can simply split Tyrion's journey into pre-Penny and post-Penny. Both sides have a lot of similarities, 
Tough circumstances, personal mistakes, tough Tyrion moments, but the post-Penny side is an essential burst of sunlight on Tyrion's soul, even in the horrible circumstances in which they find themselves. It's not instant. Like with his brother, Tyrion will find that the way back to a better life is not a straight road. It's all zigzags, and sometimes you end up two steps back. In fact, if we want to keep the brother analogy going, let's cast Penny as the Brienne to Tyrion's Jaime. She's just that spark, that little push towards him slowly becoming a better person or something like it. It's not a dead-on comparison. There's obviously a lot more going on between Jamie and Brienne, but hopefully you get my notion. And with Tyrion, I really do mean that it's a slow journey, but it is there, just in very small increments. And it's not by any grand gesture, again, or even so anything so significant as what Brienne and Jamie get up to. They have a lot more going on in terms of adventures as well, but... It is just by Penny being herself, a genuine good person, even with all this rough stuff that she has suffered and will suffer, and proving to Tyrion that there's some things in the world that are worth your attention and effort and fondness, basically. On top of that is the obvious point that Penny, like Tyrion, is a dwarf, which is such an important point for the new development of Tyrion as a character. Tyrion's dwarfism and his physical form have obviously been a core subject in terms of who he is and what's happened to him in the series. It's something he's been bitter about, tried to prove isn't an obstacle, is responsible for a lot of his emotional hang-ups, and is generally blamed as a problem by him. And for such a large part of his personality and the hundreds of people he's met, he's never spent any time with another dwarf. So having to confront that part of himself, analysing the similarities and the difference and how much of a role class plays in their physical limitations is absolutely huge for Tyrion. It's such an amazing opportunity for personal growth and introspection for him that it's really incredible. Remember how rare such an opportunity is. He spent his whole life with Tywin and Cersei and others decrying people who look like him. The only time he sees or hears about them is in grotesqueries or hearing about their children being thrown down wells or something like that. He's always been taught that they are lower than lower class and has never even been afforded the opportunity to just meet someone from that category, just see them as a human. Instead, they're painted in these horrible tales and prejudices and all that things. In so many ways, Tyrion has been alone his entire life and in at least one small way, he no longer is thanks to Penny. But let's talk about the class issue as well because that might be even more interesting to me personally. Again, this is pretty much new ground for Tyrion. He's been around people of a lower station ever since his birth, because they're obviously everywhere, as servants and whatever else. But that has always been with the societal agreement that he is higher than them. He has always been a Lannister, and a brother approach, and richer than everyone else, etc, etc, etc. There's only really been one time when that's not been true, when he was out on the high road with Bronn on the way back from the Vale. A single chapter's worth. And really, Bronn is also the only other person of a lower class he's ever had a particular relationship with. Well, I mean, Shay as well, but that has so many other elements wrapped into it, I don't think it really counts. Obviously, Bronn and Penny and their individual problems aren't really similar or on the same level at all, so I'd say getting to know Penny across the coming chapters is Tyrion's greatest ever window into the real world. For an uber-intelligent guy, there is so much he's ignorant of and about how most of the world has it, what the reality is, so this is really him getting a good lesson. And again, no one is saying that he's not had issues throughout his own life and problems, but he's also had comforts and security that very few in this world do, and he should recognise that now, thanks to Penny. So it's just more and more importance for his development as a character. It's a very emotional journey we'll go on with Penny. For this world, she's basically been dealt the worst possible hand for making life hard in terms of physical form, gender, and her class. All of these hardships have left her so protective and withdrawn, and her hearts will really go out to her at various points in the book. It's not an easy road for the relationship with Tyrion. That will zigzag as well, and there are lots of problematic points, the slapping mainly. But overall, a friendship will develop between them, and she will melt some of his shell, and he hers. As for Penny's future, just to kind of skip ahead here while we're talking overall, well, the last we see of it in the Wind's preview chapters is being alone in the Second Son's tent, clad in armour, terrified of the now-beginning battle, 
And after that, we're clueless. Certainly I am. Is she going to perish in the battle and become another tragedy in Tyrion's life? I bloody hope not. Will she survive and continue playing this role that we've just been talking about? Or is she going to come west with Tyrion? We're assuming that he is. I honestly can't begin to imagine if I'm honest, so... I'm all ears for any ideas you have on Penny's endgame, where she's going to go within the series. Anyway, all out out the way, let's get back to the present again and this initial interaction between the two, which is marred even before it begins, with Tyrion privately thinking that her name is stupid and that calling her girl or dwarf is an insult. So we see some of the problems between them start right here. Tyrion approaches offering his help, which in its own way shows he's at least progressed a little bit and he has actually some empathy for her now, but she disappears back into her room as soon as Tyrion starts talking. Well, that makes sense on multiple planes. We already know how she must feel about Tyrion personally, after we explored it in Tyrion 7, and now that Tyrion has had some time to reflect on the situation, he thinks it's pretty fair that she would hate him. But we also learn she's simply unhappy with the situation. She is unwelcome on the ship thanks to her gender. She feels endangered. Someone like Penny feels endangered every day of the week, but at least there is normally somewhere to escape to. This is a prison for her just as much as Tyrion. And once she also had the protection of her brother to count on, now she has neither option. And again, Tyrion shows at least some growth in his pity for her. How she doesn't deserve her current situation, or what happened to Oppo. He understands the devastation she feels, and he feels bad and kind. It seems like a pretty simple thing to highlight, but consider the disconnect and hatred that he's had for the world of late. They've barely even interacted, and she's already doing wonders for him. And what we really need to hope is that he can eventually return the favour in some way. So in the absence of Penny for now, Tyrion turns back to Makara instead. And right at the beginning, we get the note that he sleeps by day and tends the fire by night. So this Red Priest does need sleep, apparently. So in that case, what makes Melisandre so special? Or... Is Makoro perhaps just hiding his true nature and actually doesn't sleep in his cabin either? After all, Melisandre is pretending that she does. She goes to her chambers. So something to bear in mind there. When Tyrion approaches him, the big man is deep in his fire visions to provide some nice chapter sequencing with earlier chapters. And he even gets to hear what it is Makoro has seen. Dragons old and young, true and false, bright and dark. And you, a small man with a big shadow, snarling in the midst of it all. Any word of dragons always gets us excited. Back at the beginning of the book, we got really into the idea of Tyrion reaching Daenerys and getting involved with the Targaryen plotline, and therefore the dragons. And along the way, he surprisingly got involved with another in Aegon. But it still seems like he's drifted so far off course, so any realignment with the dragon plot is great news. But what about these visions? Can we discern anything from them, as we did with Mel earlier on? And we can, it's just a little bit more difficult this time. Let's break it down once more. Dragons, old and young. Well, if we're being literal then Danny and Aegon would both be young dragons. If Aegon is who he claims to be, then they would be very, very, very close in age. So does that leave Aemon as the old, or has he already passed at this point in time? I probably should go and check and look at the timeline that we always talk about, but I'm going to guess without looking, yes, he probably has died by now. So if not Aemon, who else can be the old dragon? Well, what about Brynden Rivers, Blood Raven, up there with Bran? He's incredibly old, and we're going to see him in the next chapter, so that might be some good chapter sequencing. Or we can look at it as age in terms of general awareness. Daenerys is the older dragon that we've known about for ages, whereas Aegon is new to us. But then again, of course, to the majority of Westeros, they're both as new as each other, so maybe not. True and false is a bit more straightforward. We figure Danny is the true, with Aegon being the false. Bright and dark probably plays into that, as we're probably supposed to take it as Danny being bright and true, whereas Aegon would be false and dark, and therefore bad news for everybody. Whether it's possible to fit Jon into this, I'm not really sure, but probably the more important fact is that Tyrion is included, and included prominently. It's not just the plot declaring that Tyrion is going to be involved with the Targaryens and their adventures, now prophecy and visions are saying the same thing. In fact, he'll be in the middle of them, casting a last shadow. So does that indicate just general influence, or does it indicate evil influence? So we can take this to mean 
He's going to be involved with Aegon, as we've already seen, maybe again. We can guess Daenerys as well, and he's met Jon Snow already, and maybe he will do so again. We can take it even further and wonder if this thing is including the Blackfire plots, and therefore Varys and Illyro, if one or both of them are of a dissension as well. At the very least, it means something important. But anyway, Tyrion is far too cynical to take Makara at his word. Maybe we'll have to wait until later for him to start taking such possibilities seriously, especially if he meets him after the ship sinking. He's just as nonchalant about meeting Daenerys, publicly, anyway. And out of everything, he's mostly interested in what the translation of Selesi Koran is. To Tyrion's amusement, it's close enough to mean Stinky Steward or Stinky King's Hand, which obviously tickles him, but it tickles the reader much more. Mokoro suggests fragrant rather than stinky, and says the true translation isn't Steward, but an associate equivalent, perhaps Seneschal. Yes, perhaps the Slaysi Quran is actually the perfumed Seneschal that Quaife warned against. This could very easily be a red herring from George, but it's still enough to interest us, especially when Makara has just told us how Tyrion will be involved with the dragons. So why would Quaife warn Danny about this boat? It could be about Makaro, but then he's already identified as the Black Flame in that same warning, and it seems unlikely that she'd single him out twice. Does it mean Tyrion then? Very, very easily could be with his snarling shadow, but I give you a third option. I don't see why it couldn't be Jorah. I've long thought the relationship between Jorah and Danny could end with him snapping and moving against her in some way, even physically attacking her when he doesn't get what he wants because he's a moron. He can't control his anger or emotions. And he's going to be especially feeling that way after travelling halfway around the world and going through slavery for her. It would be a poignant note from George on the dangers of the obsession and his inappropriate desires for Danny, how someone so emotionally stunted and idiotic as Jorah can lash out. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the warning here. Or maybe it is all just a red herring. Back in their teeny tiny living space, Tyrion shares with stupid Jorah why he dislikes Penny so much. It's because Oppo went by the name Groat. So Groat and Penny, the two smallest coins. They had been told by the world that they were worth nothing, and they believed it so much they made it their names. And that doesn't sit well with Tyrion, because if they are worth so little, what does that make him? Plus, it's a difference in approach. He's always fought to disprove the prejudices, whereas these two meekly accepted them in his eyes. But as we discussed earlier, and will do so again, Tyrion had the privilege that allowed him to do that, whereas they didn't. If they tried to defy the world and say they were worth more, the world would just beat them back down again. We also importantly learn that Penny is here on Tyrion's request, so that's that mystery solved. He wanted to bring her along instead of just leaving her behind Volantis. And Jorah suggests that this means Tyrion feels some level of guilt. Tyrion says no, no chance. And maybe on the surface that's true, but I think he does feel guilt on some inner level, or at the very least it is his empathy again. He wants to help and this is really the only way he could do that. The jury is out on whether this will end up being a kindness or not, but again, Tyrion was low on options. The focus then swings on to Jorah Mormont, who is blunt and uncaring about Tyrion, his situation, or what happens to Penny. Even if she dies, it's nothing to him. Twice exiled and small wonder, Tyrion thought. I'd exile him too if I could. The man is cold, brooding, sullen, deaf to humour. Rereaders know that Jorah's mood will soon become much, much worse, but for now, it's already pretty bad. Because of the dressing down that the widow gave him, because he's lamenting not going to join Don Connington, or just because he's a dick in general that cares for nothing except Danny. Take your option, to be honest. Tyrion certainly seems to think that that is all he focuses on, so I again worry about this mix of extreme obsession and anger and what it's going to look like on the other side. Jorah's dreams of one woman make Tyrion wonder if Marine could be where his beloved Tysha has wound up, as he does with every place he visits. He persuades himself that's pretty unlikely, which it certainly is, but George is such a fan of irony that this almost makes it more likely if you catch my drift. Tyrion's main problem, after nearly drowning and then being put in chains and then being attacked with a knife, is boredom. You'd think he might be glad for the rest, but no. This is not the shy maid with its secrets to unravel, or just friendly people in general to get along with. There aren't even ruined cities or giant turtles to look at. 
He does remind us that he still has to prick his fingers and toes because we could have very easily forgotten that tension with all that's happened lately and then tells us how his dreams still haunt him with visions of the sorrows and of Tywin Lannister, neither of which you particularly want to be seeing at night. So Tyrion remains grumpy, staring at a boring scenery with no one to really talk to and again dwells down on how much he hates his life. As we said before, Tyrion has always had an element of loneliness but has rarely been this obvious. He's never spent major time at sea before, never been around people we literally can't communicate with, and never been around people who don't care who he is. So again, boredom is his danger, which is important for someone like Tyrion who needs constant stimulation A, because of his active mind, and B, because without distractions, he might return to his moody dwellings. There's a few books he finds to try and distract himself with, but they aren't exactly scratching the itch. So he's probably pretty glad when Penny appears down in the private galley where he eats. She's shy, she's hesitant, she's unsure whether she wants to eat with Tyrion despite her apparent hunger, and some of this is still having very, very complicated feelings towards Tyrion, considering their past. Some of it is also just her general fear of the world, as we see of this worry about eating fish because she once found a bone in one. This is just how the world has conditioned her to feel. Tyrion offers wine instead of food, but that doesn't work either, so if her about to leave and him getting annoyed, he calls out. Do you mean to spend your whole life running away? Tyrion asked before she could slip back out the door. That stopped her. Her cheeks turned a bright pink, and he was afraid she was about to start weeping again. Instead, she thrust out her lip defiantly and said, You're running too. I am, he confessed. But I am running too, and you are running from. And there's a world of difference there. We would have never had to run at all, but for you. Tyrion notes that that took a lot of courage to say to his face, and he's not wrong. The old Ned quote on bravery seems quite apt here. Penny does have a backbone, and now that Tyrion has pushed her, she's going to push back. She clearly still blames him, and he understands why. Penny takes him back in time a bit now, back to the day of Joffrey's wedding, as her tears return, and she simply can't understand why he didn't just agree to do the joust as Joffrey wanted, because that's what she's been taught. She hasn't been afforded pride or dignity in the same way that Tyrion has. She's been taught to follow the path of least resistance. Keep everyone happy, you get to walk away. In fact, Oppo went so far as adopting a philosophy that did allow them to keep dignity. They were giving the gift of laughter, he said. They were providing something. It was noble and honourable, as Penny tells us. How much of this Oppo actually bought, and how much he came up with to soften the blow for Penny, we shall never know, but it does speak to a certain adaptability. It kept them alive, and it kept them happy for the most part. Of course, this is only one worldview. We knew Tyrion well by that point. We knew how cruel the moment was, how much the laughter means and hurts him. So we can't blame him for how things worked out or his choices. But this side of things he's just never had to consider before. That part of the world was just background to him. So it's some superb stuff from George to open that all up to us now. And to Tyrion as well, because now that Oppo has died, it does frame Tyrion's not wanting to be laughed at as less important. But again, it's a mixed bag. Penny and Oppo got to be laughed at by strangers and then walk away. Tyrion had to be laughed at by people he knew and then stay there for further humiliation, both on that day and in the future, theoretically, because you know Joffrey was never going to let up. That relationship was already destroyed. Essentially, both Penny and Tyrion were given a pretty rubbish situation. Tyrion forgets the pain of that day long enough to focus on what Penny lost because of his actions, though we should still attribute true blame to Cersei. And don't forget, Tyrion lost plenty on that day too, more than plenty. But anyway, he apologises once more for Oppo as Penny launches into the details of what happened to them after Joffrey's wedding. Again, details that neither Tyrion or the reader would have considered in a million years. They had to flee in case someone came up with the idea that they also played a part in Joffrey's death, something we could easily see Cersei concocting in her madness. So Peter Baelish gets some blame here too because he obviously knew what was going to happen and didn't care about how it might affect the pair he hired. Penny and Oppo fled to Tyrosh to visit an old friend, another male dwarf, and he too was eventually beheaded because he might have looked like Tyrion a bit. I haven't done a count on how many confirmed dwarves have lost their lives over a feast and dance, but there's almost no point because imagine how many have actually died that we'll never hear about. Ones that never made it back to Cersei, or ones that gave up, all over Westeros and Essos both. 
It's a very sobering thought. I never knew your juggler existed until this very moment, Tyrion said. But yes, I am sorry he is dead. He died for you. His blood is on your hands. Ouch. We can see why that wounds Tyrion so much. He's likely having the same thought about the untold dozens who have also died in his name. And if this old man is his fault, then they all are. But they aren't when we get down to it. We can see how and why Penny feels that way, but at the end of the day, the blame must lie with Cersei, as Tyrion asserts here, and I'm glad he does that. Still, the accusation is enough to anger him because it sends him down the road of all he has done. There's enough real crimes in there, even if he does embellish a bit here, that he doesn't need extra ones lumped on. It's all just unfair to both of them, and that probably angers him as much as anything. I'll give you the quote here. Call me Kinslayer, and you won't be wrong. Kingslayer? I'll answer that one as well. I've killed mothers, fathers, nephews, lovers, men and women, kings and whores. A singer once annoyed me, so I had the bastard stewed. But I have never killed a juggler, nor a dwarf, and I am not to blame for what happened to your bloody brother. So you can see what I mean about the embellishment a little bit there. But it's likely the disrespect put on her brother's name at the end that makes Penny throw wine in Tyrion's face, again showing her backbone. Perhaps it's also the intense emotion of the moment and just wanting to get out of there. Maybe it's even fear of what Tyrion is as he spills all his secrets and his lies as well. But either way, she goes and thus ends Tyrion's first attempt at making friends with her. Well, second really. Well, at least the intention was there. This is where he reflects on his previous experience as dwarves as we detailed earlier when we first discussed Penny. They were rare in his part of the world, thanks to Tywin not wanting anyone to connect his son with those he perceived as weak and lowly. Although we do get yet another quick note of the Ghost of Highheart, which is always cool. Interestingly, Tyrion himself says he never felt a compulsion to find any others like him, likely because he actually inherited Tywin's bias and didn't want to see weakness or vulnerability looking back at him. So far, other than this penny meeting and a very quick fire vision, we're a little low on plot in this chapter. Like I said earlier, a few of these chapters are not the most stirring in my opinion, but we do get something to interest us as a storm arrives. We are well aware by this point of the power of storms, the danger they represent. We've already seen the evidence and will do so again, so our tension is raised initially, even if rereaders know this is really a warm-up for what's going to hurt them later on. For his part, Tyrion is remembering his last storm on the Narrow Sea and the absolutely horrible experience of riding it out down in the depths of the ship. It's enough to make you feel sick and queasy just imagining suffering through such. So, in what could be painted as an act of defiance against death and danger, against the gods themselves, and as a moment showing that he truly does want to live just on his own terms, Tyrion climbs the forecastle to wait it out as the storm slowly becomes worse and worse and bears himself to whatever it's got to give. Being on deck doesn't make it enjoyable. Again, just imagine what these ships are going through compared to what we would experience now in current day. And there's no escape possible with very, very real threats of death coming on every wave. But Tyrion does find some joy in the experience. There's something cathartic about putting himself in nature's way. I think it's an underrated moment in the healing of his soul, to be honest. And later on, down below, he finds draw moment went the opposite way, trying to hide himself in drunkenness rather than face the actual effects of the storm, confirming that Tyrion made the right choice. Such a choice brings about an instant change in Tyrion. It's small, but it's there. He starts drinking with the crew. He plays the vast with them. It's hardly a big change, but it's more than he did before. And the more important difference is his third interaction of the chapter with Penny whom he finds alone on the forecastle rail, staring out at the sea. So perhaps both of them have had their little meeting of nature and entwined it within their respective souls. Certainly, this is where the bonding truly begins. The anger from earlier has worn off and the storm has made them both reflective. Penny almost strips some of our very own notes about past Tyrion chapters out for her own use when she talked about how life was so terrible and painful she didn't care if she died or so she fought. When actually presented with that reality during the storm, something within her sparked. She did want to live. She did want to be part of this world still. We've seen the exact same scenario of Tyrion not so long ago as he reminds us of right here. 
so the pair have something to bond over that has nothing to do with physical parameters. Penny also finds the strength within her to say that Tyrion didn't kill her brother or the man in Tyrosh or any of the others. He might not be 100% exempt from blame, but he didn't kill them. The strength it takes for her to say that out loud also allows her to admit how much she misses her brother, which suddenly gives it another click in our brain as something else that these two share, extreme love for their brothers. In some way, Tyrion is still in mourning for his relationship with Jaime, as he reminds us of his bitterness within his own thoughts, but it's an interesting similarity all the same. That unspoken shared bond allows the conversation to flow a bit easier. We even get a giggle as Tyrion half shares the tale of Simon Silvertongue, and I've got to say, Tyrion recalls the lyrics to that damn song a lot more often and a lot clearer than he actually remembers anything about Shade personally, so I think that's pretty telling of his priority to be honest. Unfortunately, melancholy returns somewhat as Penny relates more of her family history. The name of her father, Hopbean, doesn't sit any better with Tyrion than the other names, but Penny also tells of how she is the last of her family now. That love and warmth has deserted her, as has her purpose. She's flailing right now, unsure what she will do in the world or who she will do it with, especially as her entire act was based on partnership. Tyrion worries she might even ask him to take part, as rereaders know he eventually will, and he is extremely against the idea. He still has some semblance of former pride and dignity, and clearly still has issues about the lower classes and performing, etc, etc, which is all complexly woven into his larger character. Now, quick side note here, because there's a little uh, quote I just want to look at. We performed for the Sea Lord of Bravos once, and he laughed so hard that afterward he gave each of us a, uh, a grand gift. And I've got to admit, I completely forgot about this little note, or at least it's never stuck out to me before. What gift could the Sea Lord have given Penny and Oppo? I don't think this ever comes up again, and maybe it's of no importance at all. But the way it's phrased sure seems like it's significant. Perhaps the new gift was a new name. Maybe that's how she became Penny. Is it something as simple as gold? Well, I say no, it has to be more than that based on how she says it, but it's a complete mystery to me. So again, phone lines are open if you want to give your opinion on that. But anyway, the mention of Bravos gets Tyrion asking if that's where Cersei hired them to perform for Joffrey, as he's obviously assumed this entire time. I think it's easy to forget that Tyrion logically would think that, whereas we know the culprit pulling the strings, as always, was actually Peter Baelish, thanks to this mention of Oswald Kettleblack. It's such a shame that Tyrion doesn't puzzle that one out so that he can chalk up another debt that needs repaying to Littlefinger. But that subplot is bypassed for discussion on where they are going next, as Tyrion assures her that they will land in Marine, not Calf. Not that it really makes a big difference to Penny. Wherever she lands, she'll still have no act. She'll still be alone and penniless and without direction, which is probably why she takes a second to remember happier times in the little villages where everyone was nice to her. Tyrion privately brandishes his extreme cynicism about such interactions with smaller towns, apparently convinced that no one could be genuinely nice to a dwarf, that they're all secretly laughing at her, he thinks. And why does he think that? Because that's the only opinion he ever grew up with in the house of Tywin Lannister. He's convinced that that's how the entire world must see dwarves, because that's all he's ever seen of the world treating them. And a small part of him agrees. Still, Tyrion could easily be saying all this out loud. It wouldn't look out of place for Dance Tyrion, would it? Instead, he takes another teeny tiny step forwards by choosing to be kind to Penny by not just saying that Daenerys is a wonderful person who will look after her, which she no doubt would if asked, not that Tyrion knows that, but also agreeing that he will be there too, although he also has some cynicism on that point. This conversation begins a new little era in their friendship. Sweet, innocent Penny is even brave slash vulnerable enough to introduce Tyrion to something she guards fast with her heart, as it's all she has left in her world. A last scrap of family. Pretty the pig. In a very, very heartwarming scene, she allows Tyrion to give Pretty some acorns, and you've got to imagine this is a super big deal for her. Tyrion being Tyrion, he thinks it's all a ploy to slowly turn him onto the idea of joining her act, but that's only the beginning. Our hearts warm even further because we know how much both of them need this as their friendship grows inch by inch. Soon it's simply eating together. 
Then they make jokes together. There's even an attempt at Savas and some nickname making for Pretty, neither of which go too well. It doesn't erase either of the pains that they both hold, especially Penny right now, but it does allow him to feel something else for a change. All of that results in Penny building up the confidence to ask Tyrion if he wants to tilt with her. His answer is an immediate no. He might have progressed a few steps along the path, but that is still a major issue for him and not a line he's willing to cross at any foreseeable point in the future. It's just not his nature. But later, Tyrion also wonders if he got the meaning of her question wrong. Was she actually asking a very different personal question? Importantly, Tyrion says the answer would be no all the same, but we're left to wonder. Personally, I think she meant the first type of tilt, but who's to say that it's not the latter kind? She's found someone to talk to, someone who can be a friend but is also very similar to her. Maybe she is seeking some pleasure and distractions from the pain, some human contact, but I still say no. The question keeps Tyrion awake one night, so he heads back up on deck to find himself with Mokoro, just like in the chapter opening, but he also finally gets an interesting view. Tyrion had never seen a bigger moon. Monstrous, swollen, it looked as if it had swallowed the sun and woken with a fever. Its twin, floating on the sea beyond the ship, shimmered red with every wave. What hour is this? he asked Mokoro. That cannot be sunrise unless the east has moved. Why is the sky red? The sky is always red above Valeria, Hugo Hill. A cold chill went down his back. It seems like a key moment, a final view of this most mysterious, dangerous place. Considering what Makoro said earlier about Tyrion getting mixed up with dragons, getting a glimpse of their homeland and their former height seems almost of design. This is a place of major historical importance, where the fate of an entire continent, an entire world in some ways, was decided when the doom came, as Tyrion relates to us here with his description of that utter turmoil and fiery chaos. And yeah, let's go for it, let's say that, let's quote the whole thing. It was written that on the day of doom, every hill for 500 miles had split asunder to fill the air with ash and smoke and fire. Blazes so hot and hungry that even the dragons in the sky were engulfed and consumed. Great rents had opened in the earth, swallowing palaces, temples, entire towns. Lakes boiled or turned to acid. Mountains burst. Fiery fountains spewed molten rock a thousand feet into the air. Red clouds rained drowned dragon glass and the black blood of demons. And to the north, the ground splintered and collapsed and fell in on itself, and an angry sea came rushing in. The proudest city in all the world was gone in an instant. Its fabled empire vanished in a day. The lands of the long summer scorched, and drowned, and blighted. Nice quote. like that one. It's a place of power, a place of history, and whether we will learn more about it in the future books, or maybe even visit it somehow, we cannot say. Again, it seems pretty clear that Tyrion is the one to finally set eyes upon it. Did his uncle Jerrion come here? Did Euron come here? There are more mysteries for now, but the weight of the moment is undeniable. Tyrion, forever curious about both dragons and power, wonders if they'll get any closer. Makoro says, as close as they need to, to still make time, for others are apparently racing towards Daenerys as well. Tyrion, not knowing what we know and not having heard Quaith's warnings, thinks that this means Griff and Aegon possibly, and isn't sure whether that's good or bad, considering what he thought last time out about the Red Priest almost certainly moving against Aegon once his existence is discovered. But Tyrion is still curious, so he plays tippy-toes again. Have you seen these others in your fires? He asked warily. Only their shadows, Mokoro said. One most of all, a tall and twisted thing with one black eye and ten long arms, sailing on a sea of blood. It's a pretty ominous damn ending, isn't it? Again, for a very slow chapter in terms of pace, even if the penny stuff is really important, this grand warning of a huge part of the magical storyline seems to come out of nowhere. The warning is the clearest of the day. A kraken with one eye. I think we all agree that's probably Euron himself, spreading his arms over the seas and the world. So this relates to what we mentioned earlier in Mel's chapter. Euron is super important on the magical airwaves, that is clear. She picked him up while up at the wall, now Makoro is doing the same an entire world away. 
He seems way more important than we've even guessed so far, which is saying something. And I'm convinced this is the same deal as the Red Wedding, where the ripples are already spreading and everyone's taking notice. A massive sacrifice used to destroy Old Town, or summon eldritch creatures, or do something in the mysteries of the Citadel, that certainly feels like it fits the bill. What's odd is that this means that Makoro is aware of Euron's influence on proceedings, and that he is considered a shadow to Daenerys, something bad. So again, I question why he's assisting Victarion with his horn then. He obviously knows the idea is Victarion is supposed to be fetching Danny for his brother, so is Makoro just using Victarion to get to Marine and will then turn on him? Or will he continue to influence the Iron Captain into thinking himself powerful enough to defy Euron? Which he's already decided on his own, actually. Both seem possible, but why do you need to give everyone the horn? That's if, of course, what he tells Victarion later on is genuine, but it seems like it is, so that one is another mystery. Anyway, it's an odd ending to a chapter, but a cool one. That's another tension, rising and rising vision. Remember, we haven't even seen Victarion in this book yet, so we don't know how he's getting on or how close he might be. Euron's attack seems to be more important further and further we get in these books, and don't forget, Makoro also mentions that he's aware of the others coming to Neris too. So does he know about Quentin? Maybe even Marwyn? How will those two react to each other? It's very, very interesting. We can't wait to see. So a magical end to a fairly run-of-the-mill chapter. But gold, again, in terms of introducing Penny and Makoro as well, and setting up this really important relationship. And to be fair, the calmness isn't going to last for long because it's all going to fall apart again in Tyrion 9. So that is our sandwich of the day complete. We've got our two slices of bread, we've got our meat in the middle, and that is your four chapters for part 9 of A Dance with Dragons. What about part 10? Before we go here, I know I've been talking a very, very long time, but let's wrap it up now with just quickly talking about what's coming up. Like I mentioned right at the beginning, next time, part 10, we are halfway through the book, everybody. I know 10 episodes just to get halfway through, but there you go. We will start with, again, it's full chapters, and we'll start with a very, very important chapter, Bran 3. Don't think I need to explain to you why that one's quite important, but it is another goodbye, so that's a shame. We'll have John 7, when John himself decides to go back above the wall to find his grove of weirwoods. Then Daenerys 6, we've got those two big guns next to each other. That's when this big mass of Astapori come to the city. We get the result of her big decision at the end of her last chapter, and she discovers some unfortunate stuff, which just makes her day even worse. And then we'll finish with someone else we also saw today. It's Fionn 4, slash the Prince of Winterfell. Yes, we are returning to Winterfell. So you know, I'm going to have a lot to talk about then. Unfortunately, it's a dark return to Winterfell. Very, very dark chapter, but we'll get there. At least we're at Winterfell. So that is next time, everybody. All that remains for me to say is thank you once again for all your wonderful support. I know these episodes get longer and longer. The work is substantial. I don't mind telling you, but as long as you guys are enjoying it. So thank you for listening or downloading or tweeting or being a patron or whatever it is you do. It's always very much appreciated. If you do want to have a look at the patron page or maybe leave a rating or review, that would be lovely as well. Also very much appreciated, but let's wrap it up for now. We'll see you again next time. Thanks everybody.